0: What's up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking. Our guest for this episode is Chris Korn. Chris is a phenomenal, well-rounded magician with a vast repertoire, and he makes his living performing private shows for the Hollywood elite and European royalty. He's got an interesting reputation amongst our fraternity, but I've always known him as a funny guy with killer chops and crazy stories. I'm happy to call him a friend, and I'm sure you're going to love this episode, which may, in fact, have a part two down the road. I know you're going to love his episode, so I want you to get into it as quickly as possible. But, if you haven't already, join our newsletter so that you can stay up to date on all the cool things Art of Magic is doing, and I highly recommend joining our subscription service, the Ambassador for Magic program. With it, you get exclusive content, early access to videos, and my favorite feature, which is our Ask an Expert feature. It allows you to contact our team of experts so that we can give you guidance, inspiration, tips, tricks, etc. to help you reach your goals in magic. Of course, follow us on all the social media channels, facebook.com slash Podcast, And search Art of Magic on Facebook as well to give us a like there. And join our Facebook group, the Magical Thinking Podcast Facebook group. You can find it by searching for Magical Thinking. We've got a cool poll going on that is in reference to Chad Long's episode. We've got some other cool discussions happening. You should definitely join it and be a part of that. If you love the show, please go to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Magical Thinking to help support the show. The money that you donate goes back into the show to help me get better equipment and to travel, to meet more magicians, and to make the show better and keep it growing. You're gonna love Chris Korn's episode. I'm happy to call him a friend and I know you're going to love it, email me at podcast at artofmagic.com to chat about the show, and let me know what you think. Chris Korn, enjoy.
1: Join me, join me for sure. Mm. Bob (laughs) Kohler got me into scotch. That was the guy. What was that, Bob Kohler? Yeah, Yeah. and when I worked for, uh, I was working at a castle in Salzburg, Austria, and my Client's wife had the two most gorgeous daughters I have ever, ever laid my eyes on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we can talk about all this stuff, but it was.
0: Oh, we're recording.
1: Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So she brought, uh, she brought, um, <clears throat> I remember sitting in the daughters, it was a combination of um, a look. It was like half Mandarin and half Austrian. Mm-hmm. And that's a very strain of German. <laughs> Mandarin is like an on and with the green eyes, but with a British accent <laughs> so It was this crazy. They were all crazy educated and just stunningly beautiful, but that was the first time where um, I really acquired a taste for scotch was the mother's like girls, you know, and they were 20 something year, you know, in their late 20s probably at the time but sure, they were. Yeah, yeah sure they were. Car. I'm like, do I have to raise the age on that? Yeah, they were. And uh, I'm only five, probably six years older than they are. Um, but they, uh, the mother was like, "Christopher, would you please get? Would you please uh, get? Uh, yeah, girls, would you please get Christopher a drink?" She's like, "I'm so embarrassed." You know, the mother's like royalty. She's a descendant of Australian royalties, so. Um, and she brought out this decrepit bottle, you know, where they put saran wrap out where you can't really read the label. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, you like scotch? I'm like, I do now. Like I don't know what's in there, but are you about to drug me? And, uh, yeah, and then I had a taste of that, and that was like, "Wow!" And that became my thing was, you know, i like to sit with just, you know, a glass of scotch, sit in a chair with a great magic book. And slowly, because Scott,
0: god damn it, people. Alexa. <laughs> Fuck <laughs> you, Alexa. You get that? There she is. Fuck you.
1: All right. <laughs> that was awesome. Sick. Anyway, so that was. Did you ever find out what it was? No. <laughs> I mean you really couldn't read the label. He's like, this is exceptionally old. I'm like, I'm gonna take that as fact. That it's something basically I know it's something you can't go and buy. You know, anytime time you it's see, just doers with, with <laughs> yeah, saran like doers wrap doers with saran wrap <laughs> a bottle that's been rolled down a hill in San Francisco. So it's just skipping a spray it down a little bit biblical Right. It could have been. But it was like, whoa. Like amazing, amazing. And that was uh, that started be having a sip, and because I mean that's what makes Scotch a beautiful drink too. It's not something you slam. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a slow. I get, didn't understand why a lot of older men in Magic wouldn't. You know, I always see them with Scotch. I'm like, yeah. oh, because it's a sipping alcohol. You can't go get <laughs> wasted. You know, they're <laughs> just slowly sipping. They eventually do get wasted, of course. <laughs> but not right. All away. the best of them. <laughs> but I've always, I've always been
0: fascinated with like the, the old school. Basically, just the, the fantasy of being an older gentleman, not giving a fuck, drinking whiskey and smoking a cigar indoors and
1: wowing people with car trains. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, Growing up in St. Louis, I was very fortunate to have some really good mentors. You know, I knew Harry Monty um, was early teacher. And then I met another guy named Harold D. Russell, who. Um, was an older uh, black magician. And he, one of the things I learned from them about magic that was really important was th- that both of them said to me, as well as John Mendoza saying as well, it's, you know, to be, in order to be a good, really good magician, you have to be cultured. Mm-hmm. You must be cultured. So Harold D would take me out to jazz clubs at the age of 14 or 15, <laughs> 15 years old. Right? And, you know, and sitting, and I remember s- sitting there, and I was in preparatory seminary at the time. I thought, God talked to me, now it's going to be a priest. And that's a true story. You, you can look it up. I know, you're like, what? Wow. Then I discovered, what was it? Women.
2: Was oh, it? oh,
1: yeah. yeah. Then that, I discovered thing. that thing, and I was like, oh, oh, hell no, I'm sorry. I have to break contract. <laughs> I know, I swore that I would do this, but I got to go, man. You didn't tell me about that. So, um, but uh, you know, being cultured, I just remember sitting with Harold D. E. Russell. I had one of my first beers, sitting there, and I remember the waitress sitting on his lap. And I'm like in my head, you know, I'm in preparatory. So I'm like, he's married, and oh my gosh, he's got this little hot wait- white waitress sitting on his thing. And St. Louis is the reason I'm mentioning that difference is St. Louis. There's still a lot of prejudice, yeah, and and you know, hatred. For, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons I left uh, the city of St. Louis it was just too much racism and not something I wanted to deal with uh, that much. So, um, but yeah, I was like, oh my gosh, he's he's married, he's got this wife, but he's, you know, drinking, <laughs> he's having a drink and laughing and everyone's laughing. And it was just sort of this laugh and realizing that he's like, it's important that you know who these musicians are and you know that sound and that way when you... You know, being cultured gives you something to bring to not only your audience, but most importantly, to be able to be sociable and actually talk, you know, to people before and after the show about something other than what you do. Yeah. You have to be cultured so that they basically, if you entered the room and they didn't know and you talked to the room for an hour and a half, they would have no idea that you were a magician. That you have to be able to talk about a little bit of everything mm-hmm. and it was like did you you know um Harold d say make sure you read the you know make sure you read the newspaper every morning you know what's going on so you have, there's always something to talk about you don't want to be that dork standing in the room and i i noticed that um without being rude but it's a lot of magicians are socially awkward yeah they don't know how to do anything but talk just about magic. Mm-hmm. And I think in order to be a very well-rounded magician, you have to be. A well-rounded person. Yeah. <laughs> in general, yeah. I think. <laughs> um, it's just smart for business and it's smart. It's good. It's you, that's And that's how you meet so many other contacts and other people and you end up that sort of spreads through the room Mm -hmm. where you're confident in a different way other than just your magic. You know, there's a security in your life other than just doing the tricks.
0: Yes. You're saying all of my favorite things.
1: (laughs) (laughs) These are a few of my (laughs) favorite (laughs) things.
0: No, I think it's super important and I totally agree. Most magicians are just magic nerds. And I get it because magic can be all-consuming but it's very much like if you're going to perform, why should people give a shit? And it has to be because they give a shit about you and what you think and feel and care about. <laughs> Tricks are fun. But magic is an art. And if art is self-expression, you have to live a life worth commenting
1: on. Yeah. It's it's taking those risks. And really, you know, when you do... I know I was for sure the awkward, you know, like... I was always playing practical jokes at school. Always, always, always. That's how I got kicked out of the seminary, basically. <laughs> <laughs> sort of kicked out. I used to not say kicked out. Maybe but like, you definitely got kicked out. <laughs> right. But um, I always loved, having, you know, a sense of humor. But I was not good in any regard with the girls, the ladies, whatever. It was like, <laughs> uh, uh,
2: uh, 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 you know. Yeah.
1: And um Uh, magic opened up just part of that personality again of being cultured and having things because that same thing gives you things to talk about to girls. (laughs) You know what's going on in music, you know about the arts, like there's no excuse in most cities. There's always free plays, free concerts. There's always a free way. Even if you're dead broke, it's like you can go to a concert and bring your own bottle of water (laughs) or whatever. Um, but yeah, being cultured sort of was the point. <laughs> I got lost in translation.
0: That's fine. <laughs> so the jazz club.
1: Mm. Yeah, so I started going to jazz clubs. And then I, um, I went to... There were two goals I had in early in magic. And those were to work at the Magic Castle in the close-up room where Vernon and Al Goshman, who is my favorite magician that's ever lived easily and um, and I liked it because he had he had this style I appreciated his style and the fact that he really had a structured act and I think that's one of the things that is missing a lot in magic now uh, certainly with what um with all the one-man shows now, now people are trying to understand structure, but most mm-hmm. magicians never studied structure. Mm-hmm. Most are one-trick wonders, or yeah. they can do this trick and they put it away, and they do this trick and put it away, but they don't understand beginning, middle, and end. And that was one of the things I learned with John Mendoza. He really taught me about structure and structuring an act and importance of the arc of it going up, 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 dropping, you know, it's sort the of same thing that Juan teaches, mm-hmm. you know, that how to put an act together and why you need a trick in there maybe that isn't so power you know, doesn't hit them over the head, but it gives them time to breathe a little bit, relax, where it's not maybe the best thing, but, um, you know, consider when you have more than 15 minutes to perform somebody something the <laughs> castle in the close-up room, 15, 20 minutes. But uh, learning how to sort of stretch out that um, or, or build, basically build an act. And gosh, so I'm sorry. My point was, Goshman had that structure, and even back then, he, you know, when he did Chinka Chain, you know, he brought out the cassette player, you know, and, and, uh, would play music. You know, so he had music involved. Even if it was a close up act. It was close up was more theatrical at that time. You know, you sat with the audience and that there's a big difference between sitting and standing. There's a connection that you make when you sit with the room or you're sitting down and looking at people directly, not looking down at them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I know that, um, it seems that a lot of magic is more effective when you're standing up, right? Because certain things are harder standing than sitting and vice versa. But there's a beauty of that, you know, I know close-up mats are back in now. They've, they went through a phase where it wasn't cool to use them. Close-up mats are cool, right? But that's a stage, and that gives that focal point for the audience to to look at. And that is your theater. That is your little stage. And by sitting with the audience, there's things that um, they... You can create the illusion that your hands never, ever leave the table, ever. I know that's the only thing like in the Vernon cups and balls I don't like is when he goes to his pocket is the fake, mm-hmm. the free explains the French drop sort of. It's the only thing because it, you know, my favorite cups and balls routines are the ones that never, i going to put this in my pocket. It's like that magic happens right there and your hands never leave the table. Everything's right there. Um, so Goshman had the structure and arc and he was charming and he was this, you know, older guy. Slightly overweight or I don't know. <laughs> plump he is plump. He was jolly. Yeah, he was yes, yes. He was you just nailed it. That's who he was. He was Santa Claus. And we didn't know it. Al oh, Gosh when is Santa Claus. It's been real than find out who ace was. We know now he was Jolly. He's got There's just a food on his shirt, you know. Um but yeah, it was like this. And in the sit back and that confidence, the way he sat back in his chair, and he's like, I'm a magician. He's like, say, please. you know, mm-hmm. he's controlling his he control of the audience. You're being pulled into his world. And, you know, and that charm that he had with the ladies. And yes, he was very flirtatious. That, And I think that's part of where I got that in my act is that I was inspired. By, you know, just this it was cute, but it was never... Over the top. He wasn't groping or grabbing or making heavy sexual innuendos. He was just charming, mm-hmm. very charming. Um, you know, uh, at that time, maybe it was considered a little more risque than yeah than today by today's standards, for sure. But he had that same thing, in the, that Harry Monty has as well, where it's just they're still very classy. And it's this old school charm and they handle props in a sort of old school way that, you know, just flows and it's beautiful to watch. So you can get lost in just watching the dance of the, the. dance of the hands. If you don't like the humor and mm-hmm. you don't, you know, uh, oh, that was the other thing. as a Goshman man put in, he put a piece in for every, you know, you, uh, the way I structured my old act that I used to do at flim flam in St. Louis, which was like one of the early uh, close up theaters um it, it's gone now, but that's sort of where that chair format that, that is in the castle now where different leveled cocktail tables mm-hmm. um, it was uh, really structured max, so there's something for everyone. So I, I really I look back I'm like, well, I was trying to be a little too much you know was <laughs> like, I made sure that I had a mind reading piece in there and I had you know uh, big production trick and then, you know something to music which i was trying to structure sort of formulate after al goshman's act like that just there's something for everyone mm-hmm. so that you you know your odds of of losing the audience or losing some of the audience goes down yeah so that's what i have to say about that <laughs>
0: Well, how how do you structure an act what is an act supposed to look like if you were going to write it down in a sketch on a piece of paper what is the,
1: the art? well there's a lot of art. uh formulas um I, I think something early on that uh, was like uh uh homer and uh, homer lee and brett wolf uh Who's passed away, unfortunately. But we used to really observe, you know, um, we'd watch people like Mac, you know, which that formula is (laughs) perfect, you know. You just, but we actually looked at the formula of someone's act. And not the tricks they were doing. It's like, Mm -hmm. why, why is an act successful? And it, this is, this goes the same for you listen to Bill Burr, Louis C.K. There's a rhythm. Like Bill Burr, he is someone that goes for the throat. Yeah. And the closest comparison in the magic world to Bill Burr is, um, Tim Conover, like those two. Um, I remember showing uh, Bill Burr to Eric Mead for the first time and he's like, Oh my gosh, he's a Bulldog He just goes for the You know Because once he Attacks He yep. doesn't Let you go yeah. Like on that first special Of Bill Burr's Called Let It Go It's brutal Like you You're in Yeah And you cannot get out You're a victim To his comedy Yeah And yeah. you're just, just You're going down The rabbit hole And he's just like Arr! And he's like oh. You feel a little exhausted Like you did After watching Tim i a fucking mad. <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> So it Um so the structure for me, you know, I watch... So there's different styles. So that rhythm, there, there's a formula there to his voice patterns. When you listen to those, uh, it's, you know, it's like a heart monitor. Almost. It's like, You know, it's like someone running up and down stairs, right? If you living, ever lived in an apartment building where you hear people going up and going down, it's like, you know, but then you would know that it was someone else. You can listen by the footsteps mm-hmm. and there's a rhythm or pattern in there, um, which uh, let me remind me here in a second or, or about uh, liar, liar. So, okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, what you asked was to get to your question was what, uh, how does it look on paper? For me, the biggest thing that I learned from um, one of the biggest things from John Mendoza was that when you come out, right if it doesn't matter if you are you think you're the super funny guy or whatever you are a magician and you need to come out and hit him over the head like that and that's the approach I've always used you have to open with something hit him hit him quick not a super long story trick just <laughs> come out and do magic that's why you're hired you are a magician so come out and do that then if you want to start <laughs> you go into a bunch of the funny stuff um that that's fine. Mm-hmm. But it really was that you come out and hit them over the head. So it's always a quick short effect, maybe a minute or too long that kind of grabs their eyes and like, Whoa, what was that? You know, and you get their respect. Mendoza had a rule too. That was awesome. <laughs> that was great. Um, and he said, he's like, well, because he used to take, you know, when he had Mendoza magic days, he would take all these guys to, um, As Don England was still around and was living in, uh, near in Illinois as well. But Mendoza magic days was just across the St. Louis river. And, um, the challenge was basically you take these guys from Amar to (laughs) whoever, uh, you know, he had everybody back in the day, Amar, Daryl, you name, you know, every, all the greats, you know, the young, the (laughs) <laughs> the all, hedonists although yeah, yeah they were they would all show up yeah so um but his thing was you take him to a biker bar oh wow and this is when a biker bar was a real biker bar
0: not like a, <laughs> not like a know, moped bar yeah right
1: not where it's uh, you have your your bikes hauled to sturges and then you get <laughs> off and act like you rode there across the country <laughs> you know it's like you know the harley davidson I do, I do. restaurant in my Vegas. dad's one of those guys yeah <laughs> i know they all right there's and that's okay but it was, you know, he's like, no, you have to go to a real bike or bar, biker bar. And he's like, if you can go in, sit down and do a coin trick or a card trick without getting your ass kicked, you know, you're you're good. Yeah. You have what it sort of takes, that, you know. And so that was a goal. Did you ever get your ass kicked? Uh, no. I do not know how I didn't. I didn't I've had a few drinks thrown in my face, but that was by women mostly They're saying something stupid. I am the master of sticking my foot in my mouth, for sure, for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I remember after you know I was in college and uh, towards graduation and I, I John I saw John. I was like, hey, what do you want to do? I'm like, I want to go to a biker bar, <laughs> you know. So, and just so he could see that I could do it, um, because it is you know it's like what what do you do you know if you're trying to be too soft or you have to learn how to work with every level of class you
0: gotta fit the context
1: yeah you gotta walk around like alright what trick's gonna work for this room that <laughs> your, your you know your repertoire should be wide enough that you know what would fit right then and not with it too long a process and fully you know <laughs> so you produced a rose <laughs> yeah
2: exactly <laughs> I did a floating rose
1: <laughs> um, what did you do I'm curious uh, Kennedy's translocation which is my favorite coin trick in the world Easily. Cool. Easily, still one of the best. And that's a great, you should interview that guy. John <laughs> Kennedy has some great stories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, I did that. And uh, Mendoza's ambitious one, two, three, four, five, that's what he opens with. Mm-hmm. And it's a version of Triumph that's, it hits him over the head. It adds a big punch to Triumph, basically. Uh, and it's a beautiful, you know. It just happens so quickly, and it's like, whoa, oh, okay, we'll take this guy seriously. Yeah. Cause they're like, oh, cause some people do hate card tricks, and they're like, whoa, you know, oh, we gotta watch this. But that ambitious one, two, three, four, five, it's in the book of John, which is the most awesome thing. (laughs) He was like 20 something when he wrote that. But it's because like, if you could, you know, he said something about that book, which was you could make your living off that book alone, like the effects in that, like, it's a solid, the beginning, you know, you have your beginning, middle, and tricks Mm -hmm. in there. Um, and I still do a bunch of material from those from that book but naming a book The Book of John it's like wow in the 70s you're like, it's not like today people wouldn't even bat an eye today but yeah. back then that was a little risque I'm like wow balls on that dude yeah. so uh, yeah when it comes sorry we got sidetracked again you're gonna have to edit this down in about 15 seconds but um, so Nine beginning seven. yeah is uh, my belief you that um you start with something simple, short, hit them over the head, and then slowly ease into a little bit longer pieces. And my dip always is usually a little story trick. And this is the thing of getting out there and working, actually getting out there and working for people where, you know, a lot of magicians seem, they take on magic, but yet they're, they fear rejection of not, you know, I read so many of these effects or I see things that say, audience tested. And I can, I can tell if you, you work that you put those hours in, like working with Eric and doc at the, the tower, you, you know, somebody that has audience tested something mm-hmm. <laughs> that's an, oh, that's been audience tested yeah. where you haven't done it five times or 20, 20 times isn't audience tested. That's not even close. Yeah. <laughs> A thousand times, you know, 500 minimum, like where anything that could possibly go wrong with that effect goes wrong. Mm hmm. And somebody says the wrong thing or spills a drink on something or it's too humid or, you know, all these little factors that people don't think about uh, or some magicians don't think about is like working. I have effects that I I change when I work in Hong Kong. And if I know it's going to be outdoors, it's super humid. Um, That changes the cards I use to the effects that I'm doing, just being aware of your setting or what your setting will be. And that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) So beginning, we'll try this again, (laughs) short effect. Uh, And then it sort of builds up and it goes in down to a dip. And then for me, I end with um, the story of working Buckingham palace because it, it puts importance into the effect like it really it gives meaning to the audience and They're like what you worked back your hand palette you know yeah it really There's drama there stakes and it, it suddenly you know it's a fact everybody does now but at the time nobody was <laughs> nobody i tra- yeah, I traded with another magician and i was like what i mean i i'd read this effect from the 1800s and i was like what is you know it's like if you give me that i'll give you this
0: well so what is it what, what's the story
1: Wait, with the trick or the palace? Both. (laughs) (laughs) No, I traded with Michael Forbes for for a trick. So um, (laughs) the wine glasses (laughs) is what I refer to that as. You can do your homework and find that if you want. (laughs) You you listing at home. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that was when I went back for the second time. That was the trick the queen wanted to see. She was like, I remember in particular what, you know, (laughs) like, yes. (laughs) Now it's the story because I have the story of doing that for her and her asking to see that again. So, um, but the, you know, um, getting, uh, yeah. So, (laughs) um, that ending, I know I'm like, "Ah, I keep trying to get to the ending. Tonight is Alzheimer's setting in on my own. (laughs) Uh, you have to keep me on track. <laughs> keep me focused. Keep me focused. Um, so uh, finding a really good effect, like when I saw that, you know, uh, Michael do it, he's like, D-, you know, don't show this to any other guys, and you, you don't. I mean, certain material. I think that's also important when someone says, don't show something that you don't. And I was tested very early on by Bob Kohler, I believe, who, uh, you know, he was sharing a lot of. You know, was very very lucky to study with him, Uh, but he was sharing a lot of really great material with me. And I was at a convention, and I believe this uh, is the way it went down: was that Bob had, you know, like con over and different (laughs) people coming up to me, "Hey, do you have any work on such and such?" I'm like, "Nope, (laughs) I just wouldn't break the seal. I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't reveal." And I got my hand slapped very very early on. Uh, Fortunately for working on something that I didn't have permission to work on. Mm-hmm. And I learned that lesson when I was 16. So, you know, it seems <laughs> a lot of magicians, it doesn't matter their age now. Yeah. But I learned that lesson it was like, I specifically asked you not to work on that and you did. And boom, you know, that was it. I was cut off basically. Yeah. But I learned from that. I really learned from that and, and the ethics, you know, magic obviously are horrible right now. Um, And they continue to get worse as this generation of YouTube viewers, uh, you know, come along that don't have, uh, they didn't have a brick and mortar magic shop to go to that you could walk in and there's an old guy sitting behind the counter selling you a bunch of crap, you know. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's like you don't learn that respect because you don't, unless that was taught to you maybe by your parents or by relatives or something there's a lot of respect that isn't understood if you're only just learning from videos Mm -hmm. um and that's where books are so great you know that you when you're reading a book man that feel of sitting down with a book and holding the cards and having to flip a page back and forth you know because the layout wasn't so great but you're trying to do like the complete works of Derek Dingle I remember holding the thing like damn it I'm trying to nose my page <laughs> use my nose to turn the page so i didn't you know, I'm like wait a minute damn it um but that respect level of um of knowing when not to touch someone else's material and the thing the easiest lesson on that is you just ask people you just simply ask like hey i'd really like to work on that and you're gonna hear no and that's okay but um to just start Working on something, I had a magician come up to me in one of the fisms and he's, Oh, I've always wanted to meet you. And, and we start kind of sessioning, job back and forth. It's like, I want to see the really good stuff. I'm like, Well, okay, well, <laughs> we're building up to that. I right? was sparring, so we're going back and forth. And it's like, Man, you know, uh, thing is, when I see something really good, I can't help but work on it. It's like, Well, looks like you're not seeing anything. <laughs> That was it yeah. <laughs> I was like because I, the idea of uh, it's silly to work on something you don't have permission to work on when all you have to do is open a book <laughs> it is it's truly absurd and you're also wasting your own time. It's like even if you think you you know you have a better method and you have a smarter thing, you should give it to that person who you saw do it. Don't cherry pick someone else's material. Yeah. You go in and you go, man, that is a really great idea. Could I work on that? No. Huh. Well, I thought maybe you could do this with it. Blum, 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 blum. You know, help make... That person took the time to do the research. Like Connor, you know, went through every method of every possibility. He put that time in. And for someone just to come along and say, <laughs> like, oh, thanks. You know, and just take it is so absurd and it's a it really deserves it's the respect we respect each other and that respect shows in our performances i mean we, we've seen so many people that have you know just every trick is someone else's mm-hmm. or they they cherry picked and there's no reason you know i'm i love like when i stay with eric or certain you know other magicians that have these libraries because there is nothing easier And just you open I just did this last night. Yeah. And I went over my favorite thing are pamphlets. The little pamphlets. They're these they look like these shitty little things that cost two or a dollar or two from like around the most of them the really good ones I found in like nineteen thirties, twenties, thirties. And some of them are really long routines. It'll be like back then that's when people had attention spans, right? So you can do twelve phases of something. Right, and it's like but if you just take two phases out of there you have a you have a new trick or yeah. you have something that you know nobody's using it's like it's important to read the classics and study you know most of everything that comes out but man there's so many hidden gems that are just brilliant in these little pamphlets so when you're at a magic convention or where the book dealers are I always I just start buying them like and randomly, that's what the stack in my living room is all pamphlets. And I just, you pick one off, you open it up. It's like, brilliant. <laughs> you know, what? How did, how is no one doing this? How does no one know about this method? This back, you know, a lot of that pamphlet error, it was sort of one, when you say one trick wonder then, it was actual routine. It wasn't a trick. It wasn't just a trick. It was a full beginning, middle, end routine.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that, that, those are what inspire me to come up with new ideas. And when I, even if I see something that someone else does, like man, I want to do that so bad. <laughs> and then I'll maybe ask, maybe. And if not, I just don't touch it. And because you can see that someone's put. I can see when someone's really put the work into something. I mean, you feel it uh, as a as an audience member mm-hmm. uh, and a performer as well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah anything you want to ask well <laughs> I just, just sometimes yeah. I wait because it something just else blows. will flow yeah,
0: um, yeah no I, and that goes back to again being a well-rounded performer it's like not only are you cultured in the arts and in science and technology but you also know magic history and fundamentals and the the basis of everything that we're doing today you know, you, you, people can feel expertise. That's one of those things that gives you confidence, that gives you stature is just knowing your shit. Yeah. Cause you feel more secure. Like you said earlier, it's a security and having that knowledge. And so when people see you perform, they go, oh yeah, okay. This guy gets it
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it's comforting to them.
1: Yeah. And they know that. You know, when they're sitting at the table or standing around the trade show booth, whatever it is, it's like, oh, you're going to see something excellent. You just sort of carry that vibe after a while. That That's how you don't get kicked out of the biker bar. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you actually, if that was, I think that was more Mendoza's point was how much of just a man you are. It's, cause you can't be, you know, John was a Marine, him and his brother. So um, there was this strength to his Style—it's very, you know, sort of stern. He has a few jokes in there, but it's—he just kind of hits him over the head. Um, I think I've lost the plot. I've lost the plot. <laughs> I did it again. <laughs> um, lost the plot. Where'd it go? I
0: don't know. Being a man, being
1: strong, rigid,
0: having the security, the structure. Yes, of uh, uh, yes, of uh,
1: being yes. Sorry, saying so, yeah that you you exude that mm-hmm. when you when you've done the effect I think what I was saying John wasn't wasn't just like an attitude thing but it was being well-rounded and having done these so many times for so many different audiences that's where that amps up Um, what I was starting to say earlier was you know I had two goals in Magic and they were originally to work like I said the Magic Castle as I said earlier where Goshman sat before I got off on that tangent (laughs) Um, and the second was to win Fism right so when I was in. Why was that your goal? Uh, because I, get I thought. Where Goshman was. Because I thought that's what, uh, being a great magician, you know, that I, if I was good enough to sat, sit where Vernon and Goshman, Slidini sat, then, and Francis Carlyle, you know, then that was a, it was a, it would, a verification. Yeah. That I was good enough. Validation. Right? Yeah. And then, uh, and Fism. Because it was the highest award in magic, right? So when I was eighteen, my parents wouldn't let me go on spring break. So they knew I would be the kid, you know, in Florida where they throw the frisbee up seven stories and I'll jump off trying to grab it and fall to my death. So my parents were like, Yeah, you're not going, You're not going to But you can go You think you're going to spring break after you got kicked out of seminary? I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Yep, yeah, yeah. They didn't know that story for a long time, Um, but (laughs) uh, it's funny. I did go to spring break in in college, which uh, we'll get back to that moment. But um, so it was. I wanted validation that uh, you know to know that I was good, and the timing I was putting in was worth it. Was worth it. Yeah. And so um, that summer, my buddy Tim and I. Uh, Tim Kohler and I we both left the seminary <laughs> in different ways but um, my parents were like well we'll pay for you to go to California and you go to the magic castle or whatever this place is you want to go to <laughs> right so um, we come out and stay with Michael Douglas who's another Saint, great St. Louis magician manipulator dove, doves manipulation beautiful beautiful act very powerful and we stayed with him and we we got snuck into the castle through whatever source it was. And I just remember being gravely disappointed and heartbroken, like actually felt heartbroken that sitting in that room for the first time in my life, that the guy I was watching was terrible. Yeah. He wasn't only not good. He was terrible, constantly flashing. And I'm like, what? This is, this guy is you know,
0: in this place that I revered doing this thing ah, that I worship
1: yeah so that was like my first disappointment <laughs> heartbreak and magic was like I'm way better than this, this guy and I'm 18 yeah. like what how did he get it? how did he get to work here because I heard it was you know it was basically like 12 guys at the time working the cat, you know and it was during it's you know uh, premiere day so yeah. to speak with you know, Vernon, all those guys were just the greats. Since everybody was great. There's nothing less than anything but that. And then um, two years later, or a year and a half... Did
0: you get to meet any of those guys when you went?
1: I know. Goshman I met many times. I've seen Goshman 20, 30 times at least. At least. Like, he would always be at the Midwest conventions. You know, Vernon I only sat down with once. Um... Uh, Carlisle Francis Carlisle always wanted to meet never got to meet him yeah um, so there were some some of the those people but you know some of the greats to me were, are also people like Gary Plants and, you know where they were doing the real stuff I met Dingle yeah. a couple times um, but yeah along the way you do meet some of those guys yeah and, oh man you know you get blown away but Um, And then I went over to... So I go over to FISM, right? And I I take part of my college money out of the college fund without telling my parents, right? And it was... This is 1991 or so. And I remember, you know, that I booked a show for like $300. And that's about how much I took out, you know, to have enough money. And this other magician, Mike Liptock, who was... And Jeff Broush. These are both sort of underground guys that were smoothies. I mean, like, really good. (laughs) Like, they have... They have the touch. Yeah. They have this solid stone. It's a very soft kind of Troy Hoosier touch, mm-hmm. right? Just everything's elegant and beautiful and they nail it every time. Like every time. It's like they don't even bother doing something that's not flawless. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like I've been working on this. Or they might say I'm working on this, but it is already perfect. Yeah. You know? um, so I, uh, I remember... I, I was talking to Mike Liptak and saying, you know, I really want to go to FISM and I want to see what it takes to be a winner at FISM. And Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't know if I have enough money. I probably have to take money out of my college account. And he actually offered to help pay for my ticket. He's like, I really think you should go. I really think you should go. And he's like, if you need the money, I'll lend it to you. But you you should go. So I did end up, you know, pulling some money out. And I'm like, well, oh, I can get it back in before they'll know about it. I had it all mapped out in my head. So I get to FISM. And um, I watch all these different acts. And again,
2: <laughs> Beep. Beep.
1: someone's backing in. Hold on. Wait. Uh, so I get. <laughs> oh, the beep's not going to stop. It picks that up. Right? It's fine. It, oh, it does. Be, okay. It'll be okay. So I get to Fism, and, you know, with I don't even know how much I had in my $125 to spend for a whole week. And I slept on the floor, at Michael Douglas's place, and he was performing there uh, at Fism. So I, with all the doves in the room, <laughs> <just> <laughs> sleeping on a, you know, basically. I mean, you know, European hotel rooms are tiny. Yeah. But I was like, dude, I don't have enough money to... You know, so I was like trying to find things... You know, getting a baguette every day. And <laughs> whatever it took just to be there. Yeah. Really. Um, so I watched some of these acts and I was just, again, heartbroken, and gravely disappointed watching like some of these people. Like, how did they get into FISM? Yeah. Like, how, how did that happen? And then seeing... And then what was really disappointing was, number one, seeing the judges and knowing they're not qualified. I don't know how they got into the position of being a judge when you don't know what, if you don't have, you aren't well-studied enough not to know the difference between a trick deck and a regular deck. Yeah. Then I'd, I'd, maybe you shouldn't be judging. But, but I was there where somebody got a standing ovation and... Another where they got a half-standing ovation. They didn't even place in close-up, you know? I'm like, how? And then, you know, Tommy Wonder actually sat me down. um, And I was talking to him. And at that time, a lot of the coin stuff, you know, coming out of the Midwest was revolutionary. Yeah, It was, you know, uh, Troy, Kenner, Homer, me, Brett, (laughs) we just, you know, Tom Frank. We were all doing the stuff that nobody... This whole three-coin movement really was was starting, whether, you know, yeah, three-coin vanishes and all that. So when I was over there doing stuff, and I remember sitting with Tommy Wonder and him telling me a story about, he's like, no, he's like, Europeans take this award very seriously. And maybe he was messing with me. I don't know. Uh, We can't verify this now, but I do know that he told me, he felt there was one fism where somebody he was uh, somebody tried to run him over as he was crossing the street. <laughs> now maybe he's messing with me. Maybe it wasn't a magician. He's like he's like. No, we take this award very seriously because in Europe, if you say fism, laymen know what that means. Yeah. In America, nobody. And Johnny Carson, when you have people on, like, FISM is, you know, he yeah. have to explain what FISM is. No one cares about it here. It's not, you know. Yeah. That's sort of their Oscars over there. Yeah. For magic or, or whatever. So, um, I just remember because he saw me just kind of like, you know, we were we hanging been, out. just silently no, weeping. not we, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Chaos Whisper. laughs> George Michael. Uh, but I was just I just had this I just remember sitting in my head sitting and I'd done some stuff for these guys and Tommy's like yeah I was like you know it's, it's taken serious I go yeah but that other dude should have won like how did that not you know I just couldn't wrap my head around that it wasn't a fair game yeah. I didn't understand politics yeah. basically at the time and that's politics like but you get you know it's be pre-selected who's gonna win or maybe not Um, so that was, uh, that was sort of, those were the two things that really were, uh, that affected me in magic where I was disappointed with my own art form and seeing, wait a minute. I thought there was this level of standard (laughs) that you had to be great. That's why I worked so hard to make things look perfect or flawless. And suddenly it's like, ah, you don't have to be, I'm like,
0: what do you mean? You don't have
1: to be. (laughs) So, um, what did that do
0: to you? How did that affect you being disappointed like that twice in such a short span of time? Well,
1: I did end up going and competing at FISM. <laughs> That's how that happened, basically. I went, um, so I created an act um, that I thought for sure could win FISM, for sure. And I think it, even today, even if I didn't do it, if someone else did it, it probably would. It's really good where every piece is an original. In the show is something that nobody's seen, and I mean, like, nobody maybe. Oh, when I say nobody, I mean one or two people have seen me do, yeah, right? So, but um, suddenly winning Fism didn't have the value that it did before, yeah, at all. So, uh, that's when I decided to create the uh, the offensive act, <laughs> um, and And when I I was living in Scottsdale at the time that I came up with the idea, um, hold on a second. Um, So um, I was living in Scottsdale and I just came up with this absurd idea for an act that, you know, I was like, well, I'm going to go in. I want to compete, but I want to make a statement. And at that moment, it became political for me. Yeah. It was no longer about winning. It was like, I definitely am not going to win, but I will be remembered. You know? and <laughs> I will. It was, I was just, I was still angry at the yeah. idea that it's, you know, the best doesn't always win. Yeah. And where it's clear, where it's, I mean, oh, where it's blatantly clear that somebody else was way better and then somebody else wins. You're like, what the hell? You know, so, um, uh, that's where I came up with the whole routine of, um, uh, the trick, the effect is for those of you that don't know, was um, well. Uh, I started the act by doing a coin sequence from Bobo's, right? <laughs> and with a couple little things in there, but not doing anything. And I believe there was without uh, there was a bit of hype about me being in the competition, and I ended up getting grandfathered in at the last minute, which was not fair, but there was a chance. The thought was nobody knew what I was going to do. Yeah. Paul Wilson uh, knew that I was going to do something, but he had no idea what it was. Like, I kept this pretty... like Very tight. Super tight. Uh, yeah. Not as tight <laughs> as the ending of the trick. <laughs> well, so tell people what it is that you're talking about, because some people may have Wait, no no, idea. no, no, they have no idea. Right. So here's the effect. Uh, you take a deck of cards... You fan them out. You have someone choose a card. They place... <laughs> this is great. I should write it up as a little... It'll be my first <laughs> pamphlet. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> Beginning, middle, end. <laughs> Capital, end. Um, so a card is selected. Shown to the audience. In this case, it'll be the nine of spades. Um, they put the card back. <clears throat> I shuffle the cards, mix them up and uh, I say to the audience at that moment I'm like well I I'm like man I didn't I didn't have a chance to eat before we started do, do you mind if I have a little snack in the middle of my my act and they say, it doesn't matter what they really say right but I t- I'm holding the deck of cards in dealing position and I shove about a third of the deck goes into my mouth and I take a bite out of the deck and you actually see the bite marks and a third of the deck is gone and I show it on all sides, right? So I take another bite. Right? So now you're down to a third of and I'm talking about like you're eating it, not not uh yeah. thickness wise, right? yeah. So and now I show, and now it looks like I'm holding like a small <laughs> like the size of a mini. It's the Snickers. Deck core. It's the core. <laughs> yeah, it's the core, right. And then that last piece slowly goes in and I into my mouth and I chew it up and swallow it and it looks like I really it really looks like I'm eating a deck of cards like that visual that's the visual that you should have in your head and I'm like man and I start to talk again and I'm like oh I don't, I don't feel so well um, and I act like I'm going to do the cards out of mouth but I don't <laughs> it looks like I'm about to go like they're all going to come back out and I go man I don't feel so well like oh, those rider backs are really (laughs) hard on the stomach. And then you hear this long, (laughs) a very long fart, right? And um, (laughs) we'll we'll go into the detail. I'll finish the effect. So you hear a long fart sound. And I'm like, oh, man, I feel better. I feel better. Uh, And then you hear a a real short fart. And I go, man, I don't know if I can stop this. And I bend over and I push my arms against my sides, kind of bend over and the deck shoots out of my ass. As you hear this long, I don't mean sprays, like a card cascade thing. Yeah. So they shoot and one, like shoot like up to 10 feet or so. And one card sticks, ends up sticking on the wall. Right. And I walk over to the wall and you hear it. I like think there's a piece of shit stuck to it. Right? And I'm like, is that your card? And I show it to the person in the front row, and they go, no. And I'm like, oh, shit. And now when I turn around to look at the cards on the floor, the back of my pants are blown out. And you can see my ass, basically. Um, well, not my real ass, but you see an ass. And I reach, uh, reach down, I'm looking around, and you get the big laugh, and there's one card sticking in the crack of my ass. Right, and you know, I back up to the front row of the audience, like, I don't wanna touch it. I don't wanna touch it. <laughs> right. And you know, it's supposed to be their card, and the card was the nine of spades, but it's the three of spades in this case, and I go three of spades. I hold on. And I bend over again and I fart, and as I do it the the three of spades turns into a long card <laughs> and it's the nine of spades. <laughs> No, that's my my long card routine, for lack of a better term. So, so that was the act that I that was the end of the act mm-hmm. that I came up with for So several things happened along the way of getting in there. So I'll go into this now. So the so I get grandfathered. I never should have been in there. There's no way I shouldn't have been allowed. I didn't submit a tape. I didn't. But I got in. The stars aligned. Yeah, the stars (laughs) aligned. The asterisk in my (laughs) ass. So, um, and again, nobody, it's kept close to the chest. Nobody knows. Very, I mean, nobody knows. Even the person that grandfathered me in didn't know. So at the very, like, a few, so... There's a little. Uh, this is something interesting that happened backstage at FISM. <laughs> so I'm back there, and that's like there were like a hundred, you know, our net eighty performers or something in close up. And the close up there is for a room of two thousands. So there's nothing close up about it.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean that's the thing. This isn't. They're calling it micro magic. <laughs> like, there's nothing micro about it. <laughs> like because it's not, you know, you're not in a setting. And even when they judge the competition, you know, the first people are. Ten feet away, or whatever. You're not. It's not a real close-up setting. Yeah. So, but I get. Uh, I'm backstage, and people are uh, clearly upset that I was suddenly in the competition. Mm-hmm. Right. And I had made somewhat of a name for myself at that time already. So people kind of knew who I was. And were, oh, you know, oh, this is bullshit. You know, I don't know how you got in, but this is bullshit. And I'm like, and I'm laughing. You know, and I I remember this guy from, uh, I won't say where, but he, him walking and just, he's giving me the stink eye, you know, he's like walking back and forth with his chest peacocking, kind of like, yeah, just making all these sound effects. And it was really funny to me because he has no idea that I'm not there to win. I'm there to lose. Right? I'm there not spectacularly.
2: Yeah, yeah, right.
1: I'm like, like, dude, you don't even know. I am the least of your worries. You might want to worry about someone else that's practicing right now and not peacocking, walking around. Right. So I'm getting a bunch of attitude backstage in the in the area. Yeah. Um, and then right before I'm getting ready to go on. Right, It's now, and the people have been watching magic for days. (laughs) I'm at like the tail end because I, you know, it's grandfathered in. So the guy that grandfathered me in comes backstage and he's like, Corn, what are you going to do? Oh, no, wait. Before I got grandfathered in, this was important. This is an important part of the story. He goes, all right, I got you in, but you better either win or get kicked out. And I go, ah, it'll probably be the latter. But he didn't really hear that. <laughs> so now here we are. And I mean at the last second, a little word must have like he's Trigal gonna round. do something. You yeah. know, he's up to something. And he comes backstage like, Corn, what are you gonna do? I'm like, it's too late now, man. It's gonna happen. <laughs> it's gonna go down.
0: The bells are in motion.
1: So, <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm
1: like, all right, here we you know. Z- you're gonna make me look bad? Like, dude, it's done. It's like it's just I'm going on, man. So I go out and um so I do the first part of the trick, and I end up dropping a coin on the floor. People are like, oh, I thought this was going to be the great Chris Korn. They're expecting this killer, like, you know... Stunning phism phism coin magic that they've never seen, but I was not going to put that out there. I was yeah. not... Because, at the, you know, our group, too, we did stay true to each other. Our Midwest group uh, with Homer and Brad, Troy, we kept that stuff to ourselves. Yeah. I mean, we held on to it for years and didn't show anybody i mean never shared so um but so i just did stuff from bobos and i dropped a coin at one moment <laughs> it's kind of you know i could see a couple faces you could only see a few faces right sure. because of the spotlights on it so uh, and i do another routine where the deck changes place with my fism badge the deck vanishes and they swap places the badge turns into the deck in my hanging badge whatever so and then i go into this routine so there are a few things i didn't understand or didn't realize at the time so <clears throat> i end up having the card you know selected matt king chooses the card uh, he's sitting in the front row but again they don't know what's coming basically yeah. uh, and at the time for the setup for the fart reference thing <laughs> the reinflatable whoopee cushion had just come out like literally a month before fism because I was trying to figure out, I didn't want to make the sound with my mouth. Yep. I wanted it to really sound like a real fart. I didn't want it to be electronic. Yeah. you know. So I had basically 2 reinflatable re-inflatable whoopee cushions under the table, like double bass drums. Can you see a drummer? <laughs> so that I could step on one, right? Because they have the foam the yep. sponge inside. So i step on the one and then I'd let go of that one as I'm stepping on the other. So it would create, and then step back on the other as that one reinflated to create this very long sound right but you, you were stagger breathing whoopee cushion yeah <laughs> stagger breathing i'll have to put that in the note <laughs> stagger breathing so i am um, matt king picks the card go and i'm eating the deck and at this point like the uh, you know everyone's exhausted at the convention and it was super hot yeah. it was like the air conditioning wasn't quite working was so people, people are like yeah and they're like sweating and but people were in other rooms <laughs> watching on these giant screens which is <laughs> i bet that was awesome i would love that they refused to give me the tapes but um Check. so <laughs> you could probably get them now right no. No, okay. <laughs> no, NHK, I think, owns the rights yeah, to okay. whatever it, it fizzed but they were like, absolutely not. So, um, picks the card, I'm eating the deck, and the eating of the deck looks really that good, where, like, I'm turning the deck around and showing, like, it's a real bite mark gone. You know, you just saw it was a real deck. Like, the yeah. switch was great, everything. I'm getting, on I go, and after I take the second bite, I'm like, and nobody's nobody's really reacting and I just go man you guys are really asking for it (laughs) (laughs) and then I eat the last piece the farting starts and then um, the cards shoot out everything's going correctly but what I don't realize is the fake bum basically I took a pair of pants and shredded the back and I have this fake bum over my underwear or whatever and in that bum is a slit and that's where the long card is sticking out right So, um, what I don't realize from the judge's standpoint is five, once you're about five rows back, five to eight rows back, you can't tell that's not my real ass. Amazing. (laughs) So (laughs) when I first bend over to pretend like, Oh, I messed up, you know, and I moon every moon. moon I mean, it was (laughs) the, the sounds of laughter. I remember seeing one of the judges holding his sheets. And they're, he's just... shit. When he heard the farts the first time... When they hear the first fart... Them looking at each other was so amazing. Because I could barely see them. And they're like... Did he just do that at FISM? You know, like... Doing offensive stuff was not common. Yeah. You know, when I did this. So... Or not that common. But they were looking in one judge... And then when he hears the second fart... And the card spray out. I see him, like his sheets, he's holding them and they're just shaking. He's laughing so hard that he ends up dropping them on the floor, right? So, um, oh, so I don't realize they think that's my real ass for a minute, yeah. obviously. And then I back up to the front row to Mac and I go, I don't want to touch it. I don't want to touch it. <laughs> Classic magicians <laughs> thing to say. I don't want to touch the card, whatever. So that gets a huge laugh. But it had fallen back inside the plastic bum. Mm. But I don't know that. Yeah. Right. And he's like, no, he's like, it's really not there. It's not there. And I'm like, and then that's when I, this is what, this was the moment for me that I remembered most vividly was, I'm like, and it just, it wasn't planned. Yeah. But I grab my sleeve and I start rolling up my sleeve and I go, don't make me go in for it and you hear 2,000 people whatever go, no! And then I put my hand up in the air and then it looks like I That's so reach into my ass and I pull it out slowly. And you hear the fart again. And, uh, yeah, so when I, when I got, uh, I'm like,
2: thank you! Like I just
1: won. I, I, it was the pose holding a long card like I just won fism but I I knew yeah so by the time I get backstage they're waiting for me the part of the committee people and um uh first I wanted my judging sheets (laughs) they refused to give me I'm like those are collector items (laughs) I want those do you know how much money these are gonna be worth oh (laughs) that's so those would have been so great to have though. just man that would have been I would have loved to have those and they were having none of that so I was the second-to-last performer for close-up or micro magic. So they, uh, you know, they're all pissed off, like livid, livid. So the judges afterwards, like you, you know, uh, you are uh, um, you're an insult to the art of magic. You will never go anywhere. You will never, uh, you know, they were just going off on me basically. And then I'm standing out in the uh, with some of the judges now we're in the hallway and they're still barking and Bob Sheets is standing there and I'll remember the conversation I'm not going to mention the other people in the argument but they're looking and it's like you will not get away with this young man like uh actually I did <laughs> you, you, you will never work another magic convention as long as you live I'm like well there's $250 I don't need <laughs> in magic conventions don't really, but Bob Sheets is standing there watching. Oh, ah, like he was watching a tennis match. You know, he's looking like a cat watching. <laughs> he's just going back and forth, just literally standing right in the conversation. <laughs> his head's almost in the conversation. Oh, ah, you know, Bob. Gap to smile. Oh, ah, oh. And, uh, they're like, you, you know, uh, you will be banned from, every fism in the future and they went on and, and not knowing that I well, they're like you will look at you'll be nothing in magic you will never be anything I'm like okay that's fine and I already had my first TV show lined up <laughs> 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 there's this series coming I'm like you're right I don't you know uh, and that wasn't any motivation for doing this. This was just, I thought, a truly funny idea. And it actually is a really good trick. It does have a beginning, a middle, <laughs> and an end. Like, there's no... It's, uh, but yeah, a lot of people got offended and flipped out. And, you know man, I thought you were going to do your good stuff. Like, that was great stuff. <laughs> that was really good. Did material. you see me eat that deck? It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you know how that worked? No, you didn't. <laughs> if you saw how that worked, you'd buy one. So. Where'd you get the balls to do it? <laughs> Just from being practical joker. Yeah. Always loved, always loved practical jokes. That's why when I've seen all these shows, with, you know, playing practical jokes, I'm like, ah, I would have been perfect for that. Um, it was, again, it was just, I really resented the fact that that I, I had that much, that much disappointment. It was just simply a joke, but it was also, I really wanted to make a political statement like this. And I go, man, more people remember me for this than they will if I won. Yeah. So we went back to the next visit with the film crew and interviewed over a hundred people. And they, they, you know, so it's three years later, right? And they're asking, the camera crews are asking people, I'm not standing there. But they were asking people, Oh, what do you remember from, you know, do you know who won? Do you remember who won stage? Do you remember who won mentalism? Do you remember, you know, nobody, like, it was almost nobody. It was literally maybe 7% of the people remembered who won something, if anything. But about 70% of the people on camera, I don't know, but this American, <laughs> Chris Corn, did this act. And that was sort of, uh, that made me very happy. That, <laughs> but, but it, it, you know, not t- from an egotistical standpoint. I'm, I'm sure some of that's in there, but it really was that it. You know, there should be standards for the judges. Yeah, you know that you should be educated if you're going to be judging someone who is ten times the magician and ten times more red than you are. And mm-hmm. you, should, you know, there's got to be. Qualifications for these people to be judging you. Yeah. And not where they should be able to actually do moves. So it was, it, for me, it was just really, I knew what I was going to do. It was going to upset everybody. And I know I'm I'm a very good magician. And I, uh, you know, the travels uh, from everything that's happened from that first fism to where I ended up going back to that back to fism where I spent that college money and went there, that. That risk to go see what it took is what made my career take off. Mm-hmm. My real magic career. Um, going to that first visit and being disappointed. Um, and then I missed my flight. And back then in 91, they didn't charge you. Now it's $300 plus difference in fare. But I was in um, Geneva, Switzerland. I'd missed my flight. So uh, they have lockers there. So I put my, I put my Sunday's best on. And I went to this really swank hotel right by the uh, downtown Geneva and asked, uh, asked the, the guy in the hotel, what is, I go, where's, what's the most expensive bar in town? Whatever." And he's like, oh, you don't, basically, like, you don't want to go there. But, I, you know, I got my suit on now. I can't get on the flight. So I just basically plan on walking the city all night. I don't have enough money for a hotel room. I think I had $30 left. And he's like, you don't want to go there in 1991. It's like, it's $25 for a drink. And I'm like, that's exactly where I want to go. You know, right? because I'd read all the stories of Max Malini working for royalty and how this, the risks that you have to take in order to get to that level. Right? Yeah. So basically I was following the Malini rule of Matt, you know, something that he did early on. How do you get into those circles? How do you, you have to go to the place where those people hang out. Yeah. And you have to be, you know, educated, you have to be cultured. And if you're not, you're, you know, so I already had been what I thought was cultured at that time. I'm 20 years old at that time. And I go, um, so I go to this place and I knock on the door and you have to give a password. And I get in and um, the bar was amazing. It was beautiful. Like uh, a lot of. Pilots used to go. So there's actually like sofas that are carved out of stone in the side of the wall Wow! Yeah, so it was like where fighter pilots used to actually from opposing countries supposedly used to sit down and not You know, there was no fighting or whatever because being a fighter pilots way different than being someone in the field Yeah, that's a completely different style or approach but So I get in this place and I'm sitting at the bar, and I order a black Russian, and um, a black Russian, for those that you don't know, is just Kahlua and vodka. White Russian is famous from the Big Lebowski, right? You know. Yeah. Um, But a black Russian, but in Europe they really use the measuring, that little measuring cup. Yep. And I paid the twenty, you know, like (laughs) exactly what he said. Twenty, you know. Oh. It was, you know, in Swiss francs, whatever, but it was basically, it was 25 on the nose, basically, yeah. for my drink. And I had one shot of Kalua, one shot of vodka, and two ice cubes, right? And at that time, you know, I mean, Americans were used to big gulps with giant cups and, you know, just filled to the top with ice. Yeah. And so... I'm sitting there and I'm like that is the smallest pour I've ever seen I'm used to like St. Louis where it's like Rah! people <laughs> pouring half a bottle into your glass or something but I'm sitting there and uh, I start to hear someone speak English right? so I learned a few words of uh, French at the time and through an ex-girlfriend and um, I hear them say something say something back and like oh what do you do you know what are you doing here? And when I was 20, I looked like I was 12 was the other weird thing. I my, I didn't, my face didn't mature until <laughs> I got, until I was like 30. Finally, <laughs> I got some definition. So I'm sitting there and uh, I, turns out this is uh, the guy I'm talking to and I start doing magic. And after a little bit of talking, what are you doing here? I didn't say I was there for a magic conference. Um, but in the end sort of uh, towards the end of the conversation I was like well oh oh, no I know I told him that I was doing a show there, that I had a show right which I didn't you know Um, I was just at a magic convention and broke so Um, he's like well when uh, when do you go back and I'm like oh I have to go back tomorrow because I had classes starting (laughs) right in two days or something And I knew my parent; I had to get that three hundred dollars back in my account that I took out, right? Because they're going to kill me if they find out I used the funds for the magic convention, right? So, he um, was like, "When do you go back?" And I go, "Oh, I, oh, I have to go back tomorrow. I, I have some shows." But it was really I just had classes, right? Because I really wasn't—I hadn't done a real corporate show at that time. Yeah, I was doing parties and stuff, but not a corporate sort of thing. So. I go, uh, and he's like, well, when do you leave tomorrow? And he's like, well, what's your fee? And I go, oh, it really doesn't matter. It, it, it's not important. I really have to be back for these other engagements. you know." And he's <laughs> like, I'll double it. I'm like, well, no, 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 it doesn't really mean. He's like, I'll triple it. And I go, it really does. He's like, I'll quadruple it. <laughs> and I was like, mm. and that was the beginning of my, that moment in yeah. time was the beginning of my magic career. Right there as far as. I jumped into that Max Melini sort of world and it turned out this guy was the youngest chef to have won the Michelin award and the other big, he was a culinary chef that was famous, like full on famous there. I ended up staying for, I think, six and a half months (laughs) being jet set around (laughs) Europe and he would cook meals and I would do, I was the surprise guest at the end of dinner And the way we kept things were this, again, this is going back to being cultured, was that no one knew there was going to be a magician at the party. So I had to socialize and interact with the guests, and I was one of the guests at the table. Maybe the host of the party would know. But pretty much, you know, and I had to make up a story, you know, and I talked about what I was studying at the time, which is yeah. architecture, so I'm like, Oh, you know, so I had something I could stick to that I did know enough about that I could sweet talk my way through a conversation. Yeah. And that that guy, the money I made from that six and a half months was enough to pay for the next two and a half years of college. <laughs> I like think it was that because he didn't name a number. He just said, I'll quadruple it. And I'm like, that's it. And my mom and dad were, you know, obviously a little pit. And my you need to get back and I'm like, uh and then I came like, yeah, but how about this?
2: Boom.
1: How <laughs> oh, you like them.
0: Dollar you dropped a like cartoon bag of money. Yeah, exactly. Right.
1: Dollar bill, y'all. <laughs> oh, making it rain. What? You know, you're talking to my parents making it rain. <laughs> <That's> so, <funny. laughs> so that was that was really the beginning. And yeah. that that in turn is from a client that saw me 14 years, whatever, earlier was how I ended up. They remembered me from 14 years earlier for Buckingham Palace. It was like, and I was tracked down and that's how I ended up with my first gig there. It was like, what was uh, you know, what was the name in this guy? Blah, 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 and they found me. And that's like that one little risk that I took, that small risk to go to that bar and not care, you know, and just try just try but also having the material you know yeah having being well practiced and know you know knowing a few words of french yeah and over that time that i spent there i memorized um this is something i talk about i rarely lecture but one of the things i talk about is learning a trick learning a couple tricks in another language at least one back then i probably knew four but it was phonetically memorized it's like a song right you just get used you play it over and over i used to play on a walkman back then <laughs> i had my friend cecile translate in france translate a bunch of stuff she spoke, spoke multiple languages and that that uh ended up that was a big boost so when you are in the room and there's someone from france or germany and spanish is well you know more than accepted that covers a whole <laughs> covers south america must <laughs> it's portuguese but But pretty much, like, learning something in another language expands your clientele and your repertoire.
0: Yeah.
1: And there's a whole different rhythm to speaking there as well. On that note, I'm going to go take... I'm going to use Lou. (laughs) Or the The "toilet."
0: The toilette. Do
1: you have a bidet, sir? (laughs) No, I said good day. No, I said bidet.
0: Were you scared? going into the bar were you afraid not not afraid like you know not that you were in danger but just like i guess when you got the offer it was like i'm gonna truck you around europe and you're gonna be in this realistically there are no pressure situations you just have to perform but like what seems like big stakes you're you're surrounded by wealthy and influential people and you're a kid in college who is studying architecture and you know who's just doing his best were you like, how did that affect you personally?
1: It definitely changed me a lot as a person. Uh, I grew up very middle to lower class. I mean, my, I'm the baby of six. My dad worked for AT&T for 30 years, never made over 30000 a year, you know, like and did not come from any sort of money. And I didn't realize how much there was a lot of personal change for, for me um, learning about etiquette. And that's another thing that I can't recommend enough. If you get your first overseas gig or you're going to be, you know, your clientele is from Japan or Hong Kong or South Africa, whatever it might be. I One of the things I would always do, and I started picking up books on, is books on etiquette for every country. And I learned a lot about handling props and it changed my magic. Um, but it was knowing which fork to pick you know these dinners I was going to there's like 12 <laughs> pieces of silverware you're like, oh, 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 like beavis and but what <laughs> I do with this <laughs> like, and you're just waiting you know and the thing that I learned you know I learned by watching yep. the most part and I just asked. and it's okay to say you don't know yes because it's better just to ask and say you know this to be honest this is my first overseas gig I don't know what do I yeah what do I do? Do I? Um, so I would ask the, the chef um, uh, some of the time, but I really, it was like the position, the angles at which you hold your silverware, when you set it down, you know, when you were done that it's at nine o'clock and, you know, what uh, the position of the forks let the servers know um, that you're done with your plates. So they don't have to interrupt your conversation. And I, I learned that when I was a busboy. Like when I first, you know, I was busboying when I was 13 before I was old enough to work. I was being paid under the table and, or by the restaurant. But, you know, if I did right when I started to do magic around 14, you know, my waitress would allow me to, to do magic at the tables if... You know, if everything was done, every had to have the coffee and the plates are all clean. You know, she would let me go do my thing to earn some extra tips. So that experience of having, and I'm tying this into the overseas thing, of of etiquette, was that I had to learn what that etiquette was, and my waitress had. Uh, this is like a weird pet peeve I have now, is. Someone coming up at a restaurant of a waiter or waitress, say, "You know, do you would you like some more water? Would you do you want some more coffee? Do you want, more? you know, asking and asking and asking when you're trying? It's very clear if you sit back and watch if someone's body body gesture. You know, they might be in the middle of a breakup. He yeah. might be ready to propose. There might be in a business meeting. They might that you you don't have to interrupt. And be like, do you want?" Do you want the, do you want to, and there's a flow to that. There's an etiquette to knowing you just, you just reach in, you stay, keep your head just far back stay enough. Stay out of frame. You stay out of frame. Basically, you're staying out of frame and you're giving them water so you don't have to ask. You know, if they don't want it, they, I call it the backhand. There's a backhanded gesture. Like they, they just slightly lift their hand. They don't have to look at you. And it's not being rude. Yep. To me, that is not being rude. It's truly understanding the etiquette of knowing how to behave in any situ in any situation. And so for me that it was it was definitely scary, you know, and I was mid we we say Hoosier, you know, but it was like white trash. You know, it's like <laughs> I you know, there was a lot of slang in St. Louis. So I had to change the way that I spoke, um the posture at which you sit when you eat to keep your shoulders back, how you cut and hold the meat with your fork, all the, those little moments of etiquette Mm -hmm. and understanding what they are from country to country. You know, you get over uh, in uh, parts of Singapore, even within that country, different regions have different etiquette. You use your hands That's what you do. And you're just, you're eating off a banana leaf and shoving things in your mouth. And it's not to use utensils looks awkward or whatever. So it, I was definitely challenged um, the more uh, the more that I went along I just started to make notes and I knew you know because the, other people sitting at the table you know and some of these were royalty and some of them were just wealthy people whatever but it was there will be somebody in the room staring at you yep. watching to see because they're doing the same thing I'm doing right they, I don't know what they're I don't know what they do for a living. I don't know anything about them. But they're kind of like mm, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> don't quite, I'm trying to fit in, you know, I was doing my of course, yeah. I was doing my best and trying to buy clothes that were a little more European at the time. But it was kind of like look, looking you're looking around and they wait, you know, they'll just wait for you to make the first move to pick up that fork and knife to see if you know which one. pick up and where you grab it at you know at what point on the north you know the uh, fork and knife like those little finesse the little finesse that magic requires is also part of what we do you know part of being there so i would definitely be nervous sometimes going, whoa holy cow you know where i knew that i'd see the silver was laid out differently and like oh no (laughs) what (laughs) i don't know something (laughs) you know, you are supposed to take the skin off of something before you eat it. Not knowing like with some of the cheeses, yeah. there's some cheeses you leave the skin on and some that you don't. So I'm like trying to watch, you know, like, what do I do? What do I, i going to do this. Or... So, um, that journey changed me completely as a person, like what I learned and what I brought back to my family and my friends. And it changed me completely. And, sort of my attitude and it was the first time that I really, my mind was expanded, you know, for personal growth through magic where it was like, wow, I got exposed. I remember hearing growing up, you know, um, as a teenager, oh, you can travel the world with just a deck of cards. I'm like, oh, really old man? You know, thinking, Ugh. and holy shit, sure here enough. it was really happening. But it also was that I I think the reason that worked for me, because I was so well-practiced in a lot of routines and structure that I learned from Mendoza about an effect being solid, very solid, gave me that confidence, even though I didn't belong in that setting. And I think I was a sore thought, you know, I was sticking out, standing out at certain times. Yeah. So that's where you learn the way you hold your glass, you know, at what rate you drink or don't drink or listening and seeing uh, one of the best things is uh, that one of the things I learned from that experience was trying to figure out who the most important person in the room is mm-hmm. and that is like a little thing that I've I don't know how to quite explain it it's something that you figure out and I know I can stand in a room of 100 people and immediately look around the room and know that one that one that one it's a lot about that posturing Hosing. And there's a confidence that comes out of someone in a room that you can see, yeah. just like we said earlier, you can see in a performer. I look across the room. I'm like, that's the guy with the money or the head of the company or, you know, cause a lot of CEOs and stuff will blend in. They don't want anyone, you know, depending on what the function is or whatever, they like to kind of stay subdued, but yeah. they have that confidence. So, um, yeah, that completely changed the whole game for me. But it was definitely scary. And definitely, you know, but I, I lay in there, and I like, what? How in the hell did I get here? I'm like, did I just make one comment? And I'm like, traveling the world. You had to be totally surreal. It was very, very... And it was surreal for my family like, coming back and them noticing me holding my silverware differently. <laughs> and, you know? Um,
0: been brainwashed by those daggum commies over in Europe. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> daggum!
1: And that really, you know, um, I remember um, attached to that uh, about it, it being important to be very good and for it to be very tight. Yeah. I remember being at John Mendoza's magic shop and Kenner may or may not have been there. I don't know if he was there that day, but there were there were a few other older magicians. It was mostly older guys there, I think, that day. Gene DeVoe, who was a great St. Louis magician, um, brother John Hamm and all these guys, but John Mendoza was there and I... Uh, he I, I met John at a um, I bought a trick that had um, a move in it that nobody basically knew are very few people seem to know during that time so I, I finally get around a magic club and you know people were asking um, I, 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 was, I, I bought this manuscript and I spent at that time I was 14 almost 15 probably 14 and I bought a manuscript that was $65 back in 1984, and that is a lot of money. As a busboy, $84. A, <laughs> you were lucky if you got $9, $12 walking out of a restaurant as a busboy right? yeah. back then. Lucky, right? Minus the magic. Minus doing the magic, but just as a busboy. So I bought this manuscript, and I read it over and over and back and forth, and I couldn't figure it out, and I went to... Magic i went I went to a magic uh club meeting, and I'm walking around masking all these guys. I see them doing you know all the hardcore stuff everyone showing their passes <laughs> you know their fancy moves um this is when Daryl was really starting to you know Derek Dingle had just made a huge impact, and now this new sort of daryl touch very soft thing was coming along and um I was asking people oh, I don't know what that move is on and they're like well there's one guy that knows here like, but he's an asshole
2: <laughs>
1: and so being a teenager you know yeah he's beelined right to Mendoza <laughs> and he sat down with him and he took the time to sit down with me and he opens the page and I go swear Mr. Mendoza I read read you know read this manuscript and there's something missing there's gotta be something missing and I go, it's around page 12, you know, and he starts flipping through it. It was one side. It wasn't even double-sided, man, you know, <laughs> double-printed page. It was like, he's flipping through and he stops and he looks back and forth. He's and like, you know what, kid? He's <laughs> like, you're right. There's no way you can do the routine the way this is written. He's like, and this is horribly written. <laughs> he's like, I go, well, I don't understand this grip or this move, you know. So he ends up showing me. And then years later, I, a uh, couple, you know, it, yeah maybe a year and a half so I've this magic shop you should come down whatever so I went by but I never asked to learn any of his effects ever so I finally get the courage up to ask to learn ambitious one two three four five right and uh, his version of triumph basically because um, uh, I'd been showing him stuff and all that and he's like alright like, here's the deal I'll show this to you once and he's like, if you ever explain, if you ever ask me to teach you the same trick twice, I'm never going to show you anything again. He's he like, and if you have the balls to show it back to me, it better be perfect or I'll never show you anything again. <coughs> I'm like, what? And he's like, now go across the street and get me a sloppy joke. <laughs> so I, I go, okay. And I just run out the door and, you know, I kind of hear this little laughter behind me, you know, with the other old guys that were hanging out. Yeah. But I don't really think anything of it. So I so anything from that point on when John taught me something, I learned it flawlessly and perfectly. Not knowing until f- probably at least fifteen years later, I brought the story up to him. He's like, I sorta of remember that. I don't know if it was quite like that. I'm like, Oh, it was definitely like that. And it was, you know, he's like, Man, I was just fucking with you. <laughs> he's like, I was just they were he was just giving me shit, you know. He's like, But the problem was you actually did become a perfectionist or sort of a perfectionist. So everything you did show back to me was flawless. And I was like, well I don't want to ruin the treatment <laughs> 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 You know, and stop me like we were just messing with you. You don't have to work so hard. Yeah. Because I would like get nervous and shake every time I had to work for him. <laughs> you know, and just like, okay, I'm gonna try to show you something like that. <laughs> <laughs> to this day that guy still makes me nervous. But but um uh yeah, that was a, a funny lesson that So that's when, you know, getting back to Europe, that's why when I was over there at that time, I already was studying with John and made sure that everything was very tight. Because Brother John was the same. Brother John was pretty, he was a school teacher. So he, you know, yeah, he wasn't cussing, (laughs) but he was definitely, if you're going to learn something, you know, Brother John has one of the best styles that is way, way under-recognized. Yeah. That's the tempo at which he works very slowly and he's created more original plots and card magic than anyone that I know of. And somebody can call in and correct this later, write <laughs> in and correct, but just really good thinking. And there's a lot of undiscovered brother John stuff that's sitting in those books. Like, mm. So it, so in the end it was from learning from these people that I, I St. Louis had just one of the most amazing groups of magicians uh there's so many guys there growing up where everyone was really good. Yeah. Like it was like a real scene. Every, you didn't want to miss the magic meeting and sitting with these guys till three and four in the morning, you know, they call my mom on a payphone like, oh we'll bring Chris home, don't worry. <laughs> you know, he's got a stripper on his lap. <laughs> but it was man, it was a really a community, yeah a brotherhood. Yeah. You know, where people were tight and helped each other out. And it wasn't like, ooh, you know, all this arrogance. I yeah. mean, people are arrogant, but not to the level that I think it's reached today. <laughs> I went to my
0: first magic meeting in St. Louis.
1: Really? Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: Assembly 8? <eight? laughs> Assembly 8.
0: Yeah. Uh, Randy Kalin took me. Ooh.
1: Yeah. No, that's where I met Harry Monty. And that's where I met Harry Derek too, Daniels. Man. All these guys that were just... Derek Daniels was this... Great is still very good, but softy just had his own kind of, he had this confidence that he brought to close up magic. That was very, um, I would, you know, he was like a lot like Daryl, a lot like Daryl, but um, wasn't his, his approach because he was black. His approach had to be a little different with layman, you know, again, St. Louis is a lot of prejudice, a lot of racism, so he just had to, he had this nonchalant way of approaching tables, and this confidence when he would do something. Ha, ha. He just had this laugh, you know, like Daryl, where it's like you're just you're doing something, was, oh, hey, you're amazed by your own magic. Yeah, part of the time. But uh, yeah, Derek was a really good. You know, te- there were so many teachers along the way. Yeah, you know, and then later the big, you know, Troy was the next big, where it was like, whoa, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> um, when did you get out? Get out of, out? of St. Louis. Oh, I left in 1999, I think. Yeah. right around. I went moved to Scottsdale uh, for a year and then came to L.A. That was the next... Started dating an actress here at the time. <laughs> and, and she's like, why don't you get a TV show? I don't know. Why don't I get a TV show? <laughs> <You know. laughs> but I was in Scottsdale when I created the FISM Act. And then I basically moved here and within a year and a half... Got the first series, which was very lucky and fortunate um, for that to happen. Uh, You you learn. I I really my intention with television magic was to really bring some really great close up and great innovative ideas to the table. And when you get in, unless you're you know one of the Davids as I call them, where you have full control, you realize, man, it is it's. They want to start editing and cutting things out and not a you know. You can show a TV producer something like, that's the best trick I've ever seen. And then, you know, they might end up seeing how it's done at some point and like, well, that's obvious. Like, well, I know, but that doesn't matter. You said it was the best trick you've ever seen. Yeah. You know what? We had to cut that from the show. I'm like, what? That was, <laughs> you know, and you start to realize you don't have control. Yeah unless you have you're one of those guys where you get to you do get to call almost all the shots I mean I, I think that even you know um, copperfield really he ended up having he had full control of everything because of the way he built things up and it's it's definitely different with in a close-up versus stage but he you know it was a game changer where he went in and he was putting his own money in for some of those specials to make sure that they looked exactly what his vision was he yeah. truly is a visionary and had that i want it to look this way you know and and don wayne was one of those people that just blows your mind where he was capable this guy was just capable of creating these things you know and uh as a team they worked so, it was amazing to watch what came out of that thinking of the vision from one and the other, you know, being able to understand what someone's vision is and then create that and make that happen. It was like, wow, that was mind blowing to watch. And they were able to, you know, able to make that look exactly the way it was supposed to. And that was a thing that you, uh, with, you know, that was one, of I think Copperfield's biggest selling, big, big selling points was that whatever you saw on TV, It's like, come see the live show because you were seeing it. Now, all these guys, I think if you total it up and I'm, I'll let people do their own numbers on this, but most of the TV magic now, it's around 87% of what they do on TV. They cannot do live. Yeah. You know, it was at 92% at one time. (laughs) It's got adjusted a little bit, but I'm watching like, you can't do that. You can't so ticket sales don't work right if you're just trying to be a tv magician you're you're just on tv and that's it but what you run into is they want to see the stuff on television that you did in person the show yeah right so if you use a little cheat that's always the trick they want to see you know (laughs) they go i want you to float in my house or do this and this and you can't do that. They don't want to pay you. and you
0: know? even worse, they see somebody do something on TV and then they want you to do it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh,
1: yeah. oh, so, I, I, you know, I, I definitely have a respect for what television magic used to be. And it was like, I wasn't, on our first show, we weren't allowed any edits at all. And I was okay with that, except for silly things like picking a card, putting, you know, just get to the, cut to the chase. Yeah. Not... It wasn't pre-set up or pre-stooge, but it's like, can we just cut out 20 seconds of this? Um, but not realizing that you don't have control in the game. And every time I'd step back into another show, I'd think, Oh, this time I'm going to have the control. Yeah. Right. And you put it in the contract. <laughs> they just, it's like, Oh, that's cute. <laughs> you know, and I would ask. You don't know how to oh, make television. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, well, I would like to sit in the editing bay. Yeah. Well, the thing, you know, we're to, we want to, round this up and then you can come in. It's like, no, I really need to be there from the beginning. And what happened like with the first series was they were sending final cuts on things that I didn't, you know, sign off on, even though that was in my contract. And then you're going to, you know, it starts to get super complicated and messy, but you're like, you're exposing something. You're fully exposing something because you don't know what to look for. That's why I need to be in the editing bay. So I've decided basically I'm not doing, you know, um, I won't be doing any more of, uh, TV magic so to speak until um, it's exactly what I want and I do ne- you know that will be happening but it's uh, to be announced yeah <laughs> to be, be to be announced later but so things look exactly what I want and where the audience feels they feel the magic and they not just from reactions but it's the, the viewers at home really, you, you feel and they connect what we were talking about earlier that you exude that you can re- it's clear that you're really doing this mm-hmm. that it's not something just so absurd and so ridiculous that it can't be done so i think it's returning to that a little bit with you know what we're seeing with a bunch of the live shows and delgadio doing and Helder doing their things you know on their own which is great you know they're both created their own thing at this point mm-hmm. um but yeah, it's that it's gonna it's gotta come back to more of a Ricky Jay style format, yeah, instead of just being a showman, you know. Hey, it's like, <laughs>
0: <laughs> talk about liar liar a little bit. Oh, liar liar! Cause uh, I saw you lecture a... yeah, on oh, it. All right,
1: right. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So I mentioned this. Barely. Yeah. So um, I'm probably I'm gonna be doing the routine at the castle. I think uh, August 14th through the 20th, whatever. But The idea was, uh, it's inspirations and you know, you hear of all the greats, they talk about who inspired them and it's, some people are inspired by music, some are by movies, whatever, whatever. So I, for me was, there's certain effects that I couldn't ever put my finger on, like why they worked or didn't work or, um, so I started to look for movies for that pacing and that timing, that arc. And a trick. And one of those for me was multiple card selection, right? There's, there's so much work out there. Steve Spill, you know, I didn't realize he was doing that at the Jolly Jester years ago and sheets and Paul Cummins and doc, and you know, these guys that have really good versions, but the, the trick, if you have 10 cards selected, the audience knows you're going to find, you're going to find all the cards after the third one. So for me was the, the challenge became how do I create this, how do I change this so that there is a value and a weight to each card, like for the audience member. And when I first heard about Doc doing the this is funny because the ending of my version was because I misunderstood what I read about Doc Eason's <laughs> version. That's how my ending was created. Yeah. And it it um because I heard that he remembered everyone's name yeah. along with the card, right? I'm like, ah, but I, in my head, I imagined it like, and that's Jack and Mary's and Charlene's and Cheryl's and Tina's and Christie's, you know. Yeah. I, I thought it was like that. I didn't realize it was, oh, and we find this one. Oh, that and that's what your card, Mary, and this is now your, and Jack, boom, that is your card. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, I didn't realize it wasn't, like machine gun style
0: yeah he's doing like he's doing he took out a bunch of selections the selection process happens all at once but then it's like i'm gonna do a trick for you and now i'm gonna do a trick for you and now i'm gonna do a trick for you yeah
1: no and he's a you know i mean rock star he, oh you
0: know, totally i saw him do it in yeah. a sorority house it was fucking awesome <laughs> yeah no, he's,
1: it's killer his routine's great but it, it just didn't fit me yeah and that now that's like an effect that I feel, see that's funny it's like yeah how many people are going around stealing that routine from Doc <laughs> because it might require you to learn 20, 10, 20, 20 productions and memorize people's names oh I don't want that that's too hard that's yeah. too hard it's too much work but like that was a routine where you know I've seen the effect over years. it's sort of it's like it's not linking rings but It's <laughs> you know, it's like something that a lot of guys worked on or did and I I tried so many variations on this, like doing one. I just had five, six cards picked and talking about the five senses and then use the sixth to find. I tried every possible avenue to make it fit me. And that was the whole thing. It was really to make it your own. And like what inspires you? Again, going back to being cultured, the more you see, when you see a concert or a concerto, you you know, that's the other. It's like people that hate, they're like, you ever been in the symphony? Yeah. I would. I don't. I don't like that music. Okay, but why not go check it out and see why there's a whole room of people watching this <laughs> insane? You know. Yeah. Let's like in a, one of the Hannibal movies, right? Where he goes, they're at the they're at the op, uh, outdoor opera uh-huh. or something. But yeah. it was there's that clientele. Yeah. There's the clientele that you want instead of you know, working Hoosier. tables, <laughs> table, yeah, for, for Hoosiers. <laughs> so it was that, um, being around that clientele. So that, so that's where I was inspired by the music and the rhythm. And so when I saw the movie liar, liar, for whatever reason, when I was watching the movie, um, watching this arc of, and it's the, it's the scene, the boardroom scene where he has to go in and the plot of the movie basically is this, this, but for those of you that haven't seen it, Jim Carrey cannot lie. He has a curse or whatever on him. And he can't, he suddenly can't lie, but he works for a law firm. So, yeah, <laughs> that's, the, that's the irony. I jinx
0: ensue. Ensue.
1: <laughs> but the, his boss, who's trying to become partner, this uh, lady, she realizes he can't lie. So she brings him into the boardroom to try to embarrass him in front of Everyone, And for whatever reason, when I saw this, I just saw every face as a playing card, you know, or someone having a card selected. So he goes in and say, and because they kind of come into the meeting, they bust into the meeting, right? And it's like, Jim here would like to say, he has something. Why don't you tell the CEO what you think of him? And he's like, "Uh," and he can't lie. Yeah. He can't even shut up like he asked actually has to tell the truth right so he's like you are a such and such pontificating asshole yeah and it's quiet and he's rolling the ceo's like what did you know what the fuck did he just say kind of so there's your dramatic build-up for the first card right but it was this and then instead of the ceo saying you're fired He's like, Oh, I get it. You're roasting me. <laughs> He's like, do everybody. <laughs> and so now the game, right? So you have this big buildup. Like, so that first card for me was make that so impossible, like not impossible, but just st- really strong. Yeah. Where that first card is revealed. And then what Jim Carrey does is he goes a down. There's four people on each side of the table and each person. It gets shorter and shorter, his description. So to me, the, it was the pacing of the trick of they know you're going to find the other cards, yeah, right. right? But if you make it in the first one really interesting, you make the next one interesting, not a quick. Cause if you, you do it backwards where you're just finding them super fast and then try to build up to the slow thing, for me, for me, that doesn't work. But for him, it was or in the movie, it'd be a few, three sentences. You know, uh, Mary, you you stand in the janitor's closet and drink gin during the day. You know, blah blah blah. Boom. And then he goes and roasts the next person, and it becomes shorter and shorter. And then there's a pause where he has to go to the other side of the table, and there's your breather, crimp, so to speak, in the (laughs) in the middle of the trick. Then he ends up and he goes the other side, and now goes from three words to two words to, you know, bitch. Boom. And he's you know a. It's like, bam, 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 bam this buildup. So I liked I liked the pacing of that. The, you, you're starting with the importance and making those first few meaning. Like, so they want, they don't care if you're going to find the rest. Yeah. They might start to know or realize that, okay, it's going to but they don't care. They're listening to the story or whatever you're saying is really important. So when it gets shorter now, it's like they're on your train. They're trying to keep up with you now. And it's like, and yours, and bam, and bam. So my ending was um, basically what I thought Doc did from the beginning. So my ending is that all, and I'm not really using the names during the trick. I, I remember everyone's name, right? But I'm, and I maybe some of the time I do. Okay, okay, Mary and Jack, you know, but it's not, I'm not trying to. It's not obvious to them that
0: you're memorizing their
1: names. Right, yeah. So when I come around at the very end, uh, the last card, um, I re- you know I'm basically doing a version of card and wallet, right? And I take it, I take the envelope out and I pull it out, and that um, I basically do a long card from a short envelope. So it's very magical because long card, no matter what, it doesn't matter how cheesy it war- it brings a room because it's you're altering their perception of a playing card, yeah. right? It's like it's a three and now it's a ten. You know, that's what long, your, your
0: pamphlet is just long card tricks.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's it. All the best uses. So as I pull that slowly, pull that out, that gets a because people you're down to the last card you've been going bam, 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 bam and wait and I reach in my wallet and I rip this open and the last card is you, your, you know three of spades and they're like no <laughs> boom big laugh whatever yeah. pause because you're on this momentum you're going up, 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 up magician and, in the back heckles
0: it's in his ass <laughs>
1: right <laughs> 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 <Boo>. <laughs> seen this one <laughs> seen it before so as that then it turns into long card um, and you spread your arms and then sort of applause yeah <laughs> stature and now the other nine cards that were already revealed earlier are in the envelope. And now I go back around the room. And I go and that's Mary's and Jack's and Cheryl's and Charlene's and Richards and Roberts and Jason and Chris. And now it's like so you get a callback. Yeah. Essentially. It's just a callback to to the effect. But it was being inspired by that movie. You know, I saw another movie recently, which I'm not going <laughs> to say, but I found a new pacing for the same trick. Cool. That I didn't, I was like, that is so cool. So now when I see any movie where there's multiple people in the room and they have that interaction, like reservoir dogs, you know, sitting at the table yeah. talking about, I don't tip, I don't, you know, it's that bouncing and Quentin used it with uh, Zoe Bell, who's a phenomenal actress. She, uh, he wrote that movie for her, that, with all the, um, sin, uh, ah, the name just fell out of my head. It was Quentin Tarantino directed and wrote. Uh, it was all women. It was like, it was basically reservoir dogs, but with women. Um, I know, it's skipping my brain. Yeah. I just had a. Um, I've, uh, anyway. <laughs> but, so, so, anytime I see a room uh, in a movie where yeah. there's multiple people, and it's like how they bounce off of each other. Right, and that helps you create tie-ins. When you see someone say something, there's your callback. You know, there's a lot of that in multiple card selections where you're calling back someone else's cards. So that gives you a reason to do a ricochet. Like, yeah. to, oh oh no, that wasn't your oh, that was yours from earlier. Now it makes sense because of that timing. And using movies or music as a way of inspiring you know, lifting you up. That was man, you know, watching um Shows over the years When you see That movement When um, You know Copperfield show There was never A dead moment You were always Go 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 You know Like You like you didn't have a second yeah. You had a second to relax He gave you the time to relax But then It was sort of that and When it was happening It was happening Yeah And I I, I wanted that sort of pacing For Multiple card Routine Because it's Big enough That it can be structured. You know, when you, even when you watch something like, um, and I'll just drop the hint without saying, but you've seen like the three tenors uh, on stage watching their chemistry. When you see three, well, how many objects in magic? (laughs) There's tons that use three objects and seeing that chemistry and realizing that you can just put that in a, in a creative space. You can create your own thing.
0: Find what works in other art forms and let that inform what you do. Yeah.
1: And culture yourself at the same time. <laughs> it's amazing. Like, Well, that was boring. Well, now you know what not to do. Right? right. Like, <laughs> well, that's not going to work in there. <laughs> that won't fit my cups and balls. <laughs> it was a bit of a bore. <sighs> snow. Okay. And snow. That's
0: funny. Um, gosh. There's so much on here we haven't even touched on. <laughs> and I love it. Um, why magic?
1: The bug bit me. <clears throat> I met, um, my buddy got a magic kit for Christmas, for real, when eighth grade. We stayed up all night, learned, and really honestly learned about 80% of the kit, and then did a show for his mom in the morning, this guy, Sid Rodway, and he's now a well-known jazz musician, oddly, yep, yeah, his wife, Aaron Bodie, they're... Amazingly talented. You should look up Aaron Bodie's music. She's phenomenal. Uh, um, it was the bug, just sort of grabbed me for whatever reason. And I liked getting lost in magic. I didn't get into magic to pick up chicks. I didn't get in. I just love the fact that you could sit in front of a mirror and fool yourself, like blow yourself away. And the fact that you're holding an old book, you know, or something. That is my favorite thing when you get some of these, you know, old pamphlets or old books or whatever you're reading. Like, why did they handle objects going back to etiquette, right? So stuff from like discovery of witchcraft, you know, objects, if you're going to turn a stone into a frog, right, they weren't, they weren't, it wasn't like a retention vanish. Yeah. You know, that's something that was created much, obviously that style Yeah. because you would never handle an object that way. Yeah. So I was just, it was amazing to me. And then the more I studied about etiquette, the more I learned where these certain traditions or styles come from through their cultures, right? Depending on what types of forks and knives they have, why your hands are at a certain angle. Um, But I was just fascinated with the fact that I could sit in front of a mirror and you, the way I used to practice, sit on the floor in front of the mirror with a close-up mat, you know? Mom and Dad, can I have, can I have uh, rolling mirror doors in my bedroom? <laughs> okay. okay, creepy. You know. But I would sit on the floor reading a book, and you put that object in your hand. And I explain this to laymen all the time about what fascinated me about magic was, let's say it is the retention vanish or something, but one of the first descriptions of it. And you're laying, well, why is their hand tilted this way? And, and you read it, and you go, that doesn't make any you know like, that's weird. Who would handle something that way? Well, but it was written a hundred years ago. Yeah. So, but you start doing You sit in front of the mirror. And as you're practicing, at one moment, you, it's like Alice in Wonderland. You fool yourself, right? You put it in there a few hundred times, if not a thousand times, until you can't see it. And in that moment, you go, <sighs> you get the, I call it the power of awe. Like, yeah, it's like that. you take your own breath away. You just go, <sighs> and you in that moment feel the text of what you were reading like you get to understand what somebody wrote a hundred years ago and feel it and be like dude you were badass (laughs) or you she was badass whatever you know you're seeing that moment and looking in the mirror and not and i remember and that's usually when i was starting to fade i'm like i'm not this just isn't working and then you get that light you know, and you you see it right, and then it might take you two, three hundred more times to hit it correctly again. Mm-hmm. And then from that position, I would turn five to ten degrees and start the process over, and start the process over. Another thing I learned from Mendoza was about being surrounded and knowing how you're going to do that effect. Don't just choose effects that are completely angle proof because that would defeat you know that too much of a safety net. Yeah, but it's like knowing if people are standing over and you're sitting down and using Slidini style <laughs> you've got to know how to block that and yep. use your arms for blocking that's how you block so that if someone is here they can't <laughs> they can't see something sitting in the open yeah sitting like right there um didn't you practice the pass in different hands when
0: you're on an airplane <laughs>
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, had a, I think you told me. That. Yeah, I had a. Um, I had to have a version of ambitious card, if this passenger was on my left, and if one was on my right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, it, I just thought of that. Yeah, that's so. There was lots of little moves, and my uh, my little magic student. Well, he's not so little. He's six foot one now, Declan. He's left-handed, so. Um, by the way, anyone's listening, if you know really good left-handed manuscripts, <laughs> please, uh, email in about those. But Declan, I'm relearning basically everything, starting with, you know, now, now you see it, now you don't. Bill Tarr's book with illustrations are great. You know, that's like a classic that many people, I'm sure, have mentioned, but it's, it was so easy to learn from. So basically, with Declan, I'm learning everything, everything that I knew before, I'm lear- relearning from the very basics with my left hand switching everything around
0: that's exciting
1: it is exciting it's really difficult <laughs> <laughs> it is really difficult it's not so you're just been doing this for you know spreading doing the lapal spread from this hand for so many years but to really learn those moves and understand the misdirection changes all the angles change it was very wow it's pretty
0: has that reinvigorated you
1: yep Absolutely. Yeah. And it really started to make me think differently about misdirection and understanding what it takes, what it means to be a lefty and how for a left-handed person, certain gestures don't work because it's so common, right? Everyone, you shake, no matter what you shake with your right hand. Yeah. So there's certain gestures that aren't so, they don't flow naturally for you. You know, and in order for that to work for an audience, it's got to, you've got to do it enough again, thousands of times until it becomes natural and you get that flow. Here, to, you know, yeah, that's what I like about Goshman stuff, you know, <laughs> it's like back and <laughs> forth, back and forth. I was about to say something else, No, nope. I've lost the plot again. Did you ever get really burnt out? Absolutely
0: multiple times or just like yeah multiple
1: time? times multiple times why um,
0: and then how did you come out of it
1: that is i think the first time that that happened it really scared the shit out of me i mean I'm like all right i have to go get a job because i didn't want to look at it i didn't want to watch it i didn't want to see it i didn't want to pick up you know and bob kohler actually gave me really great advice you know um at that time and he's like put it down Put it down, do enough that you can pay your bills and you can work or do a few more shows and then just put it down so that you have, you know, <laughs> you're spending money, you just put it away. Don't even, don't hang out with magicians, go back into the, you know. The real world. The real world. <laughs> and I did that and uh, it came back, you know, but I really didn't know what was gonna happen. I didn't know if it was going to, it fortunately did but it happened again and then it happened I just came out of a probably year and a half burnout where I was like I don't want to do this anymore and I had some other TV offers and I was like I mm, I'm not in it right um, now I just that's not what I want to do Yeah, you know Um, but it always does come back you just have to put it to rest but it's scary as hell man (laughs) when you're like you know Uh, And that's something in magic that's important, too, is that the friendships that we make, it really is a brotherhood. You know, that you have magic buddies where you don't just talk magic. Yeah. You know, I... uh, I remember another point that I thought, you know, um, I could be right or wrong, but, I think, you know, Homer was going through a burnout phase at one point, and he just openly said, you know, could we just not talk about magic? I was like, no problem, dude. And that was it. It was dropped, because we had other things... Because we'd been cultured and other things and into cooking and you know, there were, and movies whatever, it's, there's other things to talk about. So it doesn't, you can still hang out with your magic buddies, but it's it doesn't have to be like, come on, come on. because what you don't want to hear when you're in a burnout phase is, come on, do something, do something. like, ah! you know, <laughs> I hate you! Um, So it's that, you know, knowing that it does come back, it always comes back I think it's just Able to step away from it, and if you don't step away from it, I you know, maybe it I don't know. I because I've never tried that approach of staying yeah. really staying involved in the magic community. Um, it just seemed that my magic got better and better the less time I spent with other magicians, specifically, unless it was to sit down and session with Mike Pachata and stuff. You sit down, and it's so focused, yeah. You know, when you're going to practice and work on something, it's focused and. You work on it, and then you're done. You get into the flow, and then you can step back. Right. okay, you can step back out. Yeah, the, those moments are, without doubt, not easy. And that last one was, you know, a year and a half run. It was like, it was hurting. I, oh, man, this is coming back. Am I done? Am I done with magic? You know, it challenges you every time. But every time that happens, I come back ten times stronger and more creative. For sure. So, yes. I think
0: it's kind of like a, maybe like a, like a buildup. And then when you come back in, it just Pow! flows out like a dam breaking.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the creativity comes back. That's the big thing for me. It's like, I love being creative. I couldn't do the same five tricks over and over. You know, I need that creativity and I swap out. Other magicians I've been around as you know, are some are like, how come you don't do this anymore? And how, you know, I cycle tricks in and out. You know, one of my favorite tricks is Perrier with the Twist, Kevin James. I don't know. Oh, man. It's like in a flash of fire, a bottle of Perrier appears. And then you do this amazing coin and bottle sequence. And uh, you end up producing water out of the bottle. And then the bottle vanishes in the end. So magical. And I've done it easily 5,000 times, I would say. (laughs) Like, I used to do it, but I put it away. And... You know, I have clients go, do you do that, you know, where you're putting (laughs) objects? Because I would put other objects. Barry Richardson has a thing in his book about other, besides just a coin, popping other things inside the bottle. Um, But it was, you know, something I did all the time. And it's just now coming back into my repertoire, but now the clothing style has changed, right? So now every, you know, when I was doing that trick, you know, suits were baggy, pants were baggy. It was kind of that 50s, not gangster, but, you know, but just you had baggy clothes. Well, now yeah. everything, we're under the English tight. So a bottle <laughs> is a bulky item yeah. to be having in your upper pocket or somewhere or wherever you're going to produce it from. Right. So it changed how the bottles can going to appear. How the beginning starts now is completely changed for me because my wrists are so skinny that I can't hide anything. A Perrier bottle is wider than my wrist. (laughs) So I had to come up with new methods on how to produce the bottle, wearing very slim clothing, and also how to vanish it. So that method had to change. Um, But that's something that has come back into that circulation, and that keeps me excited about magic, about putting something down. I mean, that's one of the best things. When you jam on something, you feel like you're forced to find an ending you don't have to, you can just, you can put it down. Just put it down and then, you know, it'll be that proper gimmick might be sitting on a shelf and one day you just walk by that, you know, and you go, bam, and there it is. I'm like, it was so obvious, how didn't I think of that? You know, like having little different ideas or ideas that you want to work on. Um, just writing down a simple idea. And maybe flipping through. That's my, my notebooks are my favorite. And it doesn't mean, you know, the, uh, I did something recently I was going to post about. But I wanted to be careful. So I was watching a stand-up show in Hollywood.
0: Comedy like, or magic?
1: Comedy. And someone's sitting there with a notebook. And just writing down all the best jokes and lines. And I call it the, uh, you know, open face sandwiches. open face roast beef, right, with the mm-hmm. gravy and stuff. Yeah. I call it the uh, open face grab. I just reached over and ripped the page out of their notebook. Nice. And left the club.
2: Hey, motherfucker. And I'm
1: like, yeah, dude, nope. (laughs) Nope, not not today. (laughs) And I didn't, that wasn't my right to really do that, but I literally, I hate when people steal ideas and blatantly take something. And I just couldn't stand it. I'm like, I'm trying to enjoy the show, and here you are writing down someone else's jokes. You know, the whole show. And I just... It just built up. And I was like... Argh. That's... You know... <laughs> I remember people doing that at my show at the castle when I first started working there. Just in like, oh... And their heads nodding like... You know, and they're literally just openly... They're not even hiding the notebook. They're just like, oh, great. You know? <laughs> Good one. What the fuck are you, you know, Clapping at all the wrong time. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm
0: going to remember that one.
1: <laughs> Good. Got that. So I just... You know, I call it the open face grab when you see someone stealing material. <laughs> Those aren't yours. They're not mine either. Thanks for the notes. <laughs> Thank you. I didn't know you were my secretary. I us save these for later. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> a little loan time. <laughs> you saved me so much time. I didn't have to record this, I didn't have to video record the show. <laughs> so, yes, off on a tangent again.
0: That's the whole point. So you never told the Buckingham Palace story? You said that you went twice, but you didn't really... Do you want to tell it or do you not want to tell it? Mmm. Mmm.
2: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: it's sort of a combination of stories, but basically that, um, you know, when I got the call, I have a group of friends that play expensive practical jokes, so, for example, you might think you have a gig in St. Martin, or St. Martinique, you know um but there's no gig and they're laughing and I'm like oh my god and in that moment then I was like how in the fuck did I get here and I just remember the old dude saying you travel the world just a deck of cards man when I was 14 and thinking that that old guy was stupid crazy or stoned and then there I was standing there sitting there with royalty like you can do it Anything is possible with what we do. I feel lucky for that. That's it. Was a nice, that sounded good. It sounded like a nice roundup.
0: Uh, we end with just a couple of just a couple of questions. Uh, who's your favorite comedian?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Bill Burr. Is up there. Eddie is her. Our... Great. I have to give, yeah, Eddie's really good. Eddie has a style, again, so I learned a lot from. He has this very Eric Mead style of knowing how to talk to your audience. Uh, Eric really taught me about, you know, when I used to work at the Tower, he's like, oh, you can't pull out your coins for like 10 minutes. I'm like, 10 minutes? You lose your mind. And he's like, okay, fine. <laughs> what am I going to
2: do? What am I going to
1: do? He's like, okay, three. You know, and just kind of was like the joke with a $100 bill. I borrowed a 100. Was it a 50? Was it a 20? You know, and he's like, fine. You know, he just saw the anxiety in my eyes. But Eric really, um, really taught me how to really talk with my audience because I wasn't—I was doing shows, right? I was do do walk around, but I was doing more shows. So Eric really taught me that uh, the importance of remembering people's names and why you remember and how that connects you with the audience. And he was like, "You can't pull out your coins for you know three minutes." And that first time, those three minutes felt like eternity, <laughs> right? Because my style was Mendoza—you come out and you hit him. but at the tower, you. It's a different, you're doing bar magic, right? Yeah. So you you have time to get to know your audience and make a connection before you hit them over the head, mm-hmm. right? So he was really trying to force me into that. And him and Eddie Izzard have that style. When you watch Eddie and some of his early, especially his earlier work, there's it's just this nonchalant, it's like, on Tuesday, he's all these little catchphrases and things. Who He was also a magician. I don't know if you knew that.
0: I, yeah I knew I knew that bit, he dabbled
1: I, yeah dabbled him and Ian Roland oh, really? they used to street perform together that's awesome if you look at Circle they interviewed me on the Circle DVD of Eddie Izzard because I knew a bunch of stuff about him <laughs> <laughs> the producers I don't think knew that he used to do this this uh, street act he used to uh, one of the smartest ja- um, straight jacket escapes I've heard of and it was that he would do the escape on a unicycle (laughs) and that suddenly added i'm like that's brilliant (laughs) riding a unicycle, and you know because now if you fall you are going to hit your head you know you can't put your hands out yeah so now it's like that's brilliance that's true brilliance to me so him and ian Ian roland used to write together and and worked on an act for a bit but eric taught me that this nonchalant style of gonna hey hit, you know and Getting imp- and you're getting information from the people during that moment, you know, that you use later in the act. And you find out what someone does for a living, and that can be incorporated into what you're going to do next. And, um, yeah, so favorite comedians, yeah, it's like, yeah, well, George Carlin easily is the, my favorite, favorite, ever, ever, ever. I can recite every one of those specials by heart. Would I ever do that? <laughs> no. But, again, his pacing... Excellent. Yeah, he, he, watch um, some of his his early shows. He again had that structure that we talked about earlier. Of there's a little something for everyone, and that's why he's like, here's a you know, here's something you'll never hear anyone say. And he does all <laughs> this, and he just throws these little things in. And yeah. I remember Eric noticing that about my magic that I had a lot of little bits in between the actual effects little texture pieces yeah just little kind of goofy things that didn't fit anywhere but they were it was just something that would grab someone else's eye in the room a quick visual or something like that so carlin i learned that structure yeah so carlin is yeah my first and foremost (laughs) greatest yeah guy favorite film quiz show never heard of it (laughs) yeah um uh, it's about the game scandal in the 1950s on NBC. And every... Uh, Ray Fines is the lead in that. Amazing. Uh, Robert Redford directed it. It is... I've watched it 50 times. Every single actor is... Bow! Like, you're not like, well, that was a weak performance. <laughs> Everyone, you just get lost in it. And it's really... There's a really incredible scene where Ray Fiennes has to face his father. And it is like, it's heavy. And that's what I'm saying. Like you can pull from these things for magic. Like there were little things and you see, you really get a glimpse into how, what the television world is like and what it's like to work in TV. You definitely get a glimpse as to what the real world of that industry is and how it works from corporate down to the cameraman, down to the people involved. So yeah, quiz show awesome, awesome, awesome movie.
0: That sounds amazing. I'm going to have to watch it. Um, Favorite magic book?
1: The one... Didn't have to be... No, 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 no. I still love Theater of the Mind, Barry Richardson. As far as, like, great material that most people don't get or understand why it's so good, but that is for stand-up, there's no question. That's I can go through that you know i still love the complete works of derek (laughs) dingle i love going through those old you know well now they're considered old but they weren't old at the time um yeah a lot of the there's just some really smart good material because it it came like in the book of john like that was from somebody that was a worker that was really working and really you know so you knew that material was solid And it wasn't just this clever thing. These were actual routines, structured routines. So best bite of food? (laughs) Why do you ask?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm just, I'm going through the little list in my mind. Um, Favorite non-magic book? Mm. Or favorite jazz musician? Or favorite whatever? Favorite whiskey? Oh,
1: I will tell you. Uh, my new favorite female magi- magician, or not mu- magician, musician. You now I sound like a layman. <laughs> oh, you're a musician. Um, what do you play? Is this Nia, N-I-I-A. And if, you know, those of you who don't know who Shade is, you should. <laughs> she was sort of this jazz, very hugely famous, and always stayed out of the press. It's hard to find anybody that ever talks smack about that woman but just super classy and elegant. And a place here called um, Hotel Cafe off of um, Hollywood. I That's one of the things I love about here where there's certain nights, there's free shows, and I more female singers there have been discovered than almost anywhere in L.A. Um, but it's going out and seeing... So uh, N-I-I-A, she is the... I would say the new Sade where it's like this velvet voice and I just saw her live at a KCRW concert again there was a free every Thursday they have free concerts so why wouldn't you instead of sitting at home you know some of these uh, concerts like uh, at the pier are free on the beach you can sit there with your cards and have your own picnic (laughs) you know but there's all these things that can inspire you so when you go through those burnout phases for me it's finding those little things that your city has to offer you. See. Very
0: cool. And then, what is your favorite moment of astonishment that you've ever received? Like, the hardest time you were kicked in the head, fooled. Just your favorite memory of being wowed.
1: I think seeing uh, Goshman, it was Goshman, that was the first one, where I was standing in the the back of the room and... When he made the six-inch Chinese coin appear into the salt shaker, I'm in the back of the room, and I should be able to see that load. I should be able to see that, but that was where I first just went, and it, you know, snapped my head off basically. Amazing. Uh, and it was, and I saw the first magician I saw that was Bill Coomer. He's passed away now. He's from St. Louis, but he, my aunt, uh, and called my mom and asked if I can go to this bar and because I was underage obviously but they uh, I saw him this guy do slide a hand for the first time because I was buying every Nick Trost packet trick <laughs> trick deck and I I remember saying that he did a, going to the magic shop and saying because the first time I'd seen card to wallet but you know when I was telling the guy at the magic shop that that was in uh, that the wallet was on the table first he's like no it wasn't I go, no, it definitely was. And he's like, no, it definitely wasn't. You're just remembering it that way. Here's the versions that we have. And I go, that's not what he did. He's like, yeah, it has to be one of these. And he wasn't. I was correct. It was on the table the whole time. And it was that blue, you know, that had a big impact. And he's like, well, what kind of stuff are you working on? And, And basically everything he did in the restaurant was, with the exception of that wallet, he was... Did he made the salt and pepper shaker change places? That was blew my mind, you know, he's like, well, kid, you know, all the good stuff's in the books, you know, and Harry Monty had the same advice as well. And that's when I started to get into the books, like all the great, if you don't study the books, it's very hard to become a great, great, major. you have to know the history and know that style. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. Thank you for the invite. It's time for my mid-morning (laughs) nap.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Magical Thinking. If you enjoyed the show, head over to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash magicalthinking and become a patron to support the show and get access to exclusive content. Feel free to interact with me on Patreon through the Facebook group, which you can find by searching Magical Thinking, or by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. Follow us on all the social media channels, and tune in every Thursday for a new episode. I'll see you next Thursday.
2: Cheers.